What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking, brought to you by artofmagic.com. Our guest for this episode is Brad Henderson. Brad is a magician, creator, and consultant based in Austin, Texas, and he was one of the magicians featured in Our Magic, the documentary that Paul Wilson made with Dan and Dave that came out several years ago and is available on artofmagic.com. Brad is one of the deep thinkers as far as theory is concerned in magic, and we talk a lot in this episode about audience management, what the definition of magic is, how important it is to make your audience feel emotions, and the degree to which you can measure how good or bad your magic is. This is a really great, insightful episode. There's a whole lot of great information in here, and I know you're gonna love the episode. If you haven't already, subscribe to our newsletter on artofmagic.com. We have some really great stuff coming up. In fact, on our year anniversary, May 20th, which is a week from this Saturday, we will be relaunching artofmagic.com, a whole new design and a lot of new features based on the requests that you guys gave us. We're really excited about the redesign. It's gonna be great and I'm excited to hear what you guys think of it. We also have some really exciting stuff coming up for this podcast. I'm gonna be doing things a little bit differently, and I will let you know more about that in the next week or so. You can expect updates on the Magical Thinking Facebook page and in the Magical Thinking Facebook group, which if you're not a member, you should become a member, join. We've got a bunch of cool conversations going on over there. As always, follow us on the social media channels, Facebook and Instagram by searching Art of Magic and by searching Magical Thinking Podcast. And if you love the episode or you love any of the episodes, contact me and let me know at podcast at artofmagic.com. Get into Brad's episode. It really is great. He's very articulate about his opinions, and there really is a lot that you can learn, specifically regarding the improvements that you can make to your own presentations. Brad Henderson, enjoy. Image, but I'm not familiar now. Uh, well, I just turned off my phone. I showed it to you. It was a beautiful poster of this elephant. It's their trademark, and um, I picked it up for a song. Was... That's cool. All right, so um, is there any length time? Do we just talk until we get done, or mm-hmm. what's okay? Great. Yeah, no pressure, and there's right. no there's no format really. What? And so this this is for the art of um, magic. Something the website is attached to this, or something of your own doing exactly. It's a combination of both. Okay. Um, but yes, it's. For- is there a target market? I mean, is there, or, or do you have a lead demographic? I mean, what's uh, let's not talk about method because I want lay people to listen to it. Okay, there you go. Yeah. All right. That's important to me. Okay. Because I feel, as good magicians, our duty is to educate the public on the... No, I agree not too. Not unjust misperception that they have of us. Right. Well, and I, I think oh, lay people are fascinated by it. You know, I think when lay people see magic done well, they really want to learn more about it. I totally I think agree. that makes them better uh, audi- uh, audience members in the future. I, yeah, I completely agree. And that's, I talk about this a lot, which is every time you perform, every time you do something for somebody, it is an opportunity to educate. Because not only, like magic is one of those all-consuming passions where if you're into it, you're probably really, really into it or you know a trick. Yeah, yeah. So people love to hear other folks talk about their passions, whatever it is. It just energizes them. Yeah, I think so. And we're in a um, an interesting position where the thing that people want to hear about is interesting in and of itself. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, again, not to get into it before I get into it, but my interest in magic started with this idea of what's really, you know, what's real, what's not real. Bigfoot, mm-hmm. Loch Ness Monster, magic, you know. And I think people, we're still a mystery to a lot of people. I know there are a lot of people out there that people, people don't believe in magic. Man, I think they want to. I really do. What's your definition of magic? The feeling one gets when that which one knows is impossible occurs undeniably in your presence. That's pretty good. Thanks. I like that. Are we on? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, good. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know we had started. Yeah, I like to do it that way. Well, that's fine. That's (laughs) fine. No, um, no, magic is a fascinating thing. I mean, how is it not? But like when I said when I was a kid, you know, to me, it's because I guess I wanted to believe it was that whole... Uh, Bigfoot, is it real? Loch Ness Monster, Easter Island, witchcraft, uh, uh, superstitions, secret societies. But magic was the one thing I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So, now that we know what we're on, what do you want to talk about? Well, just, I want to follow that train of thought. Because I, I didn't, uh, my interest in magic wasn't dissimilar. Um, I was super into Arthurian lore and medieval stuff. And oh. I collected swords and weird magic wands and stuff and, uh... So I was always very interested in that, you know, the the accessibility of the occult as far as children goes. Right, you know? right, like, right. <laughs> yeah, spell casting. You know, I think Bewitched was a great uh, gateway drug for some of us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I got into it uh, by almost by accident because I was into speed cubing. And when I was... In like 10 or 11 I don't know something like that and just picked up a magic book one day and yeah the first thing I learned was the two-handed transformation from our days the first method wow wow that's a lucky book to pick up your first time I know and it wasn't an Erdnays it was in something else right and right. I don't know what it was which is weird to me but um, yeah that was like the first thing I ever showed a magician who I met, and he was like, "That's pretty good," but that's that move is you know a hundred years old, right? Right. <laughs> and right. I was like, "What? Are you kidding me? That's amazing!" And he's like, "Yeah, learn something new." <laughs> well, you know, we could learn something new. Or we I know could, he was a bit misguided. Yeah, you know, it's it, it used to trouble me greatly that I would come up with a brand new idea that I thought would revolutionize magic and my own way of thinking about the world, and then. You know, you're looking at another book, you know, three months later, and you see it was published, you know, 80 to 150 years ago. Yeah. And that used to bother me. And that now I consider as a tremendous validation that, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, you know, it's, I'm thinking the right way. I mean, when you come up with an idea that you see someone that you really admire come up with, having come up with it, you know, I see magicians, they start fighting and pissing on their own little pieces of territory. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. But the stuff they all care about is mine is like the dumbest part that nobody really cares about. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that really matters, magicians tend to overlook, which is a shame. But, um, you know, when you find out somebody came before you and did it, then you still should feel great for having come up with it. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't lessen in any way your personal achievement of creating this thing. Mm-hmm. It's just you don't get to piss on it. Yeah, and put your name on it, you know. But that's that's because we and magic are often serving ourselves and mm-hmm. not the bigger picture of the audience or the art. Yeah, uh, and we'll get back to that. I think what's interesting is that um, when people are 
it's a lack of self-awareness to me, which is... On the part of the magician. On the part of the magician, okay. which is uh, doing something, and this is not to the extent of which you were talking about, but doing something that is pretty obvious and being like, oh, no, this is mine now, because I yeah. came up with it. It's like, no, like... I, it's just weird to me. Like, I, you know, I'll come up with the thing... And I'll be like, oh, this is interesting. I'm sure someone else has done it. I just don't know where it is. Where yeah. Like, how do I? Well, yeah. good for you. <laughs> That's, that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. <laughs> but but no, I mean, if, but, if, if, if more people were like you, we wouldn't have the, the, so many of the problems we have in magic today. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's Well, that's just, because you came, for some reason, you tapped into a bigger perspective earlier on. Most people come from a very insular uh, worldview. Um, and, you know, and I... There are a lot of magicians that really don't like me and hate me because I've, I do get in those battles of who owns, you know, because there's, you know, there are people that are making their name. And if you do come up with something, I do think that that is worthy of respect. I mean, we mm -hmm. wouldn't be where we are if it weren't for the creations of the people that came before us. So, yeah, I've gotten into heated battles that have turned very nasty over trying to preserve the historical record. And, you know, partly because sometimes you see people who are literally trying to scam from other people and sure. steal their ideas. Uh, but also just out of great respect for the art and the people that have allowed me to come to the point that I am. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, while we all kind of have to make our own personal decisions on how we work in that soup ethically, uh, no, I, I've always been one that when I feel somebody is doing the wrong thing, you know, to, to stop that. Mm -hmm. uh, and... You know, I guess if I think about it, is that in some way me kind of also reinforcing the whole structure of privileging this is so important? Uh, but yet it is important. I mean, the historical record is important. Uh, but to me, it's just, uh, there's no excuse for it. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse for it. There's so many great ideas out there. and um, But that's because, you know, there are different kinds of magicians. They're the people that are... Out there, they're doing it just for fun, for themselves. The people that are out there performing for others just for fun for themselves. And you have the professionals and then the serious hobbyists. And uh, all these people are a marketplace. Mm -hmm. And we love toys. And so we've created a whole industry, as, as we are here a part of, um, of, that of selling magic to magicians. And the kind of magic and stuff that you end up selling to magicians is the kind of magic that magicians like. And, mm -hmm. you know, so we have this whole world where we're trying to out-do each other among ourselves. Mm -hmm. So not only do we are we working for the audiences, we're working for ourselves. It, you know, it, it gets exhausting after a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I, always, I always think of magic as very incestuous. Um, That's a kind word. Because <laughs> <laughs> it implies consent. Ooh, nice. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird to me. Because, uh, well, like what you were saying before we started, which was, you know, the goal of coming out with an invisible deck that's visible on both sides. You know, yeah. It's like you have to know how it works before. Yeah, yeah. Should. What we were talking about is so much of the magic that's produced today is only really interesting or relevant if you already know how the trick is done. I mean, so somebody comes out with an invisible deck that you can show both sides. That is only deceptive to someone who knows that you can't show an invisible deck on both sides. Yeah. So it is appealing to a very narrow marketplace because magicians, we like to please ourselves and our magicians value being fooled, mm -hmm. okay, great skill mm -hmm. 
and novelty for the sake of novelty. Mm-hmm. Just because it's different, we like it. Yeah. So and newness. So if it's new and it's novel, if it exists, so those are the things that magicians care about. And if you can come up with either a performance or a trick that appeals to people, you can be very successful working magic conventions and lectures and selling stuff. But it's different in the real world. Yeah. Now, I don't begrudge anybody getting off on the fact that they now own an invisible deck that you can show on both sides. <laughs> so when they show their magic friends or when they do it for themselves, that they feel good about that. Good for you. Yeah. But you have to realize that that's not the tool to use when you're dealing with real people. Mm-hmm. Because you're, 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 you're having a conversation with them about things they care nothing about. Yeah. And the person who only does that is a bore. And you're also that that uh, method or that prop solves problems that pull you away from the audience. It's much more interesting to solve the problem of the invisible deck in a way that is endearing you to the audience rather than pushing you away from it. You have to do less work with an invisible deck that you can show on both sides. Well, I don't know that, but see, the point is, I don't think that, and I choose that example because. I don't know that the. I, just, I don't think that it matters. It's just a completely unnecessary thing. Oh, I agree thing. with you. I, I, I agree with you. You know, uh, now I'm curious what you think of as the problem with the invisible deck. Oh, I don't think there's. Okay. I just. No, I, I mean, not I, that yeah. specific problem, but, you know, the. So the, here's the thing is also, we have to be careful here because we're, we're doing. We're making a, a serious error. And I think there's great value when we think of and look at magic and magic tricks. And trying to get down to its really core, essential kind of nucleic elements. Mm-hmm. And when we say the invisible deck, mm-hmm. we're automatically cheating ourselves because the invisible deck is not is an effect. Mm-hmm. The tool is the ultramental deck. That's correct. Which is a, a special deck of cards that, um, which which you can do really many different effects. Mm-hmm. But isn't it funny that we? Just call it the Invisible Deck. It's become so iconic. You know, we, we've locked ourselves. I mean, and there are other ways to do because I have a version of the Invisible Deck that uses non-gaffed cards. I can mm-hmm. do it anywhere at any time. And is it as good as? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, to me, magic is about, the, is, is the feeling we produce from people. Mm. And the standard Invisible Deck produces one kind of feeling, kind of that amazement that oh, it's a little intellectual, it's a little heady. Mm-hmm. Uh, my invisible deck uh, is a little darker, not like evil dark, but it's more personal, it's more focused, it's more inward, it more draws you in, it's more of a deeper, huh? And that's what I think, so here are two ways, so two tricks, right? Mm -hmm. Same effect, right? Different methods, but what's different about them is how they make our audiences feel. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that matters is how we end up making our audiences feel. So I ask the ability to show the backside of a deck that no one is suspects there should be something tricky about in the first place anyway. Yeah. Does that change their feeling in any measurable way at all? Yeah. And the answer is unless they're unless they're a magician and they know that you can't do it. Yeah. It's purely masturbatory. Yeah. It's just self-congratulatory magicians you know pleasing themselves because they can Mm -hmm. and we do a lot of that yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so i think when we were talking about it we were both operating under the definition of a magician quote-unquote person who bought 
an ultramental deck and does the invisible deck the way it's prescribed on the yeah, yeah, piece yeah. of paper. Yeah. And that's that's what we were using, just for the listeners. Like that's I think we're both in the same place. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I, I think it's important though. Uh, one of the, you know, I, I spent a lot of time I think my success in magic comes from my ability, my, I think my talent, because mm-hmm. uh, I'm not an extraordinarily skillful or, per, per, and I, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm a magician of average skills and means. My strength, I think, is my ability to analyze mm-hmm. situations and break them down and kind of put them back together. Mm-hmm. So that, I, 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 that, so uh, that's very important to me. And that's how, in terms of how I think. And... I think that, and that's one of the reasons I, I mentioned that difference, difference, because we as magic, you know, here's what it all boils to. Everything that I talk about boils down, again, to this definition of magic. Magic is the feeling one that, that you have. It has to be you, not someone else, you. Mm-hmm. Feeling you have when that which you know is impossible. Mm-hmm. So that takes into account your whole worldview of understanding the way reality works. Something that you know is impossible that occurs undeniably. Mm-hmm. So that's the deceptive angle. It has to be real, right? Mm-hmm. In your presence. Because the moment we put up a screen or distance, we start diluting it. If I hear about it, it may produce a similar feeling of, oh, that's impossible, but it's not the same as if you're there and see it. When you see it on the screen, there's an appreciation there, but it's never the same as if you're there present. Mm -hmm. So it all boils down to how our audiences feel, which means we have to kind of start with what our audience sees. Mm -hmm. And so often, and, and I used to do this too, you know, the magician performs... And what the magician is seeing is not what the audience is seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's great value in being able to really step outside of the whole picture and break something down. You know, the ultra mental deck is a special tool that allows, you know, the magician to cause any card that's named to turn face up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's kind of a mind reading trick. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be a mind reading trick, does it? I mean, I, there are other ways I could, you know, do the trick. I could do is a synchronicity effect where somebody physically turns a card face down in another deck and like voodoo, this one turns face down, mm-hmm. you know? So now we're getting, to, so, so the point is I like to break things down into their core components. So when we were, I, when I noticed we were talking about that, mm-hmm. I, I just thought that was important because the issue we're talking about is the ability to show the ultramental deck on both sides, uh, which I think is an issue with the deck mm-hmm. and not necessarily the effect. But now we're splitting hairs and I don't know why. I'm going to drink more coffee. Okay. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So that... that Thinking about what the audience sees is a matter of self-awareness and zooming out. Yeah. Changing your perception. Yeah. Which means you have to know your material well enough that you can do that. And you have to know your character well enough that you can yeah. do that too. Um, I, it's such a weird... Okay. Uh, you performed at the castle before, but yes. how did your set change from? Because you're doing the castle this week for the listeners. How did your set change from Monday night to what's going to happen tonight? Well, so my but my set changed. So the tricks don't change. Mm-hmm. Now, now I, I should also bear this in mind. I performed this exact set that I'm doing last year, mm-hmm. but I did it for the late group. Mm-hmm. And this year I'm working for the early group. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I decided to do the exact same set because I wanted, because there's a difference between the late audience and the early audience. Yeah. There, there, there are slight differences. 
And I wanted, and I had a great time last year and I got to test a lot of my theories and pray. It was like really great. And I wanted to apply them, but with a slightly different crowd space, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of the kind of technical changes or, or a lot of that kind of got worked out last year, okay. right? So this was more of a refining and a finessing and seeing how it responds. But it, like, here's a, I'll give you an example. This, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but we'll try. Um, well, I'll give you an example that actually does answer your question. Exactly. I want both. Okay. Well, great. <laughs> well, remind me to do the other one too. Okay. Uh, this, this one is about the four, the three coin trick. And the other one was about, um, the copper silver in the hands thing. And mm -hmm. so, but we'll start with the four coin trick. So uh, I do a version of the classic gad about coins, two coins in the hand, one in the pocket. Mm -hmm. I probably did it in your show. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes that gets dropped if I've got a crowd, we'll talk about that later. But, um, and I have problems with that trick. There, there's conceptual problems, philosophical problems. I just, and, I, and I've got a solution that I, I, I'm really proud of. But the finale is, um, we, we do the trick three times, the same thing happens twice. Third time, the audience is like, I know what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And they give you an answer, and the ending is a surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, what I've discovered is a, a new way of timing the end of that line. Because the line is, it doesn't matter what you say, it's gonna be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I open my hand to show the coin is empty. And I've always been doing it is it doesn't matter what you say, I'd open my hand mm -hmm. and I say, you're gonna be wrong. That's the way I always did it. Great responses. One night, I don't know why, just, mm -hmm. I just, the timing was different. Yeah. And I said, I don't know why. It, well, you know, it was because the guy was giving me more of a back and forth and back and forth, right? So I, I couldn't go into that clear rhythm of the line. Yeah. So I was like, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, you're gonna be wrong. And then I opened my hand. Mm -hmm. The response was completely different. Mm -hmm. And after thinking about it, I see why. You know, that was the punchline of the effect and everybody experienced it simultaneously. Yeah. When I say, it doesn't matter what you say, and I open the hand, people see it and they respond to it at different times, but I instantly start talking over it. Yeah. But you're gonna be wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a valid choice. I mean, sure. you don't want every trick you have necessary to have that bam ending. Some endings and feelings you want to be soft and introspective. Some you want to be outgoing and loud. That's one of the things I, I do take issue on when I I see magic. I think magic selling magic on video does a tremendous disservice to the people who buy it. Mm -hmm. Because magic isn't meant to be experienced live. Mm -hmm. And some really deep magical moments, responses from people are really dull on camera. Yep. You know, when that person just sits there and thinks, it's not photogenic. So in order to use the media that visual is good at for magic, we focus on all of these responses of the homeless guy running away. I mean, yeah. and, 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 that's, and it's dramatic and it's fun and it, it's the perfect use of the video media. Yeah. But what a small, teeny, narrow, possible emotional range we have. Mm-hmm. And there are so many more. And that, and you know, when I would re read the forums and I'd see people, what kind of, you know, does it get screams? Does it kill them? You know, does it get a rat? That's only one magical response. Yeah. There is literally a rainbow mm -hmm. of possible ways of giving people very deep feelings. In fact, I would argue that the, the scream run away is a very shallow reaction. Mm-hmm. And the job of the magician is to make the audience feel deeply. See, our goal as a magician 
is to redefine what magic means to our audience. Because if we do that, mm -hmm. we become real. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we do that? The magician that redefines what magic means to their audience is the one who makes them feel the most deeply. Whoever moves them and makes them feel with the greatest depth, that person will be the magician against all will ever be compared. That person becomes real, mm -hmm. right? So that's our goal. Sadly, boo scares are very shallow response. It looks great, mm -hmm. right? It's fun for the rest of the group, mm -hmm. but compare me jumping out and going boo, the shock you get from that, with like people who had deep, you know, The Exorcist or, you know, some of these great psychological thrillers that get, you know, when Psycho mm -hmm. came out, you know, people didn't take showers alone for months. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if somebody says boo, you know, if somebody jumps at you in the bathroom and says boo, it's not gonna stop you from taking a shower, Yeah. right? Yeah. But that scene in Psycho did mm -hmm. because it's a deeper level of feeling. Yeah. So uh, that's what it boils down is trying to get the depth of feeling. And, and that requires contrast and peaks and valleys. So my whole show is structured on the emotional reactions of the audience. Mm -hmm. So it's ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And I'm also trying to kind of deconstruct their logical thinking and lead them to a place where they, they don't realize it, but they've started to think in magical terms. And eventually I try to get them to think solely in a magical way, uh, which culminates with uh, the bunnies. Mm -hmm. um, which I know it sounds very pretentious for such a simple trick, but you know, we magicians, we overlook these great tricks. Uh, you know, if there's a trick that magicians have been doing for 150, you know, a crappy trick, you know, we look at it and we go, that's a crappy trick. Well, like, it takes sponge balls, right? Sponge, invisible deck is another one. Uh, a lot of magicians poo poo these kind of tricks, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because who do we see do the most? Beginners. Yeah. These tricks are performed most often by people with the least experience. Mm -hmm. But yet, after how many years they're still around? That tells me that in that piece, there is something so freaking great mm -hmm. that even a lifetime of generations of the, the least experienced of months of bungling this, this trick still survives? Mm -hmm. that, trick's a, that trick is the keeper. And there is, I think, tremendous value in really thinking about why is this piece great mm -hmm. and getting to these kind of quintessential performances of them. And that's why in so much of my material, you know, a casual magician hobbyist might go, oh, I know all those tricks. Mm -hmm. But I would like to think that if you watch me do them, you would go, yeah, but I've never seen them actually work that way. I mean, there are a lot of nuances in these pieces. and. You know, it's like I'm a conductor and I'm, or, or I'm more of the composer and I'm trying to write and I'm trying to get as much music out of these pieces as I can. And I see nothing wrong with um, really exploring the classics of magic, not the least of which it just gives you a great foundation. Yeah. So, you know, um, yeah, I don't know necessarily how we got there. Oh, so, so, so that was the change, that change in that timing, that rhythm from, uh, you know, kind of a puzzled shock to a wow, bow shock. So I've been playing around with that. Yeah. Came up with a couple new lines that just kind of, you know, uh, came on the blue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do this uh, copper silver in the hands trick. And when I do it in like total close up settings, usually like the moment when you reveal that the coin in my hand has changed, I get a great reaction from the person. 
and then you get another reaction when the coin the coin revealed in the hand is a little but for some reason in that close-up room it's the opposite mm-hmm. you get very little reaction when the coin is revealed yeah and it's all at the end yep. i don't know why that is i've been trying to figure that out uh, because there are other similar tricks that I do where I play with that kind of style of revelation where I show them and all that. Mm-hmm. But it's different. Uh, I'll figure it out. So I get one more day. Well, the castle is just a weird place to do magic anyway. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because it's everybody there is primed for it and they have this preconception of how they're supposed to behave for magic at the yeah. castle. And And... Well, so see, that's to me why the early show is challenging. Because mm-hmm. you say they have a preconceived expectation, but I might take issue with that. Mm-hmm. I think most people have no idea what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. You just fought traffic to get here. You're in a suit you may not always wear. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go through the gauntlet of getting inside. And then there's a bookcase that opens up magically when you say the magic words. Yeah. And now you're in a labyrinth of a place. The lighting is low. It's like you're in a different world. Mm-hmm. And they lead you into this little theater where you can see the face of everybody. That's why I come out and I talk because... Otherwise, they're in there and they don't know what to do and they get apprehensive. Mm -hmm. I produce all these crazy big immersive events. I work with my friend Richard Garriott and we've done some really amazing parties. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned over the years of doing those is uh, that people, you know, you have to be careful as you immerse them into situations. Mm -hmm. And we would do like these, we did a thing called Magic at the Manor. We brought 18 of the world's greatest magicians, Michael Weber, Kevin James, David Williamson, Max Maven, John Lovick, John Armstrong, Andrew Goldenhirsch. Uh, Derek Delgadio, Eric Mead, uh, Gazzo, Peter Samuelson, Bill Malone. Uh, I know I'm leaving out a couple. Richard Hatch. I don't uh, know any of these people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't need to. Um, but it was done at my friend's house. And so we put Max in the dungeon and he did a seance. Mm-hmm. And David Williamson was playing Lynch the Genie, the drunken birthday party clown. Outside, this guy had a, a little mini carousel. And he was like pissed that he had to be there. And all the fancy magicians were inside. And we created this whole theme storyline event. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we what I discovered from that, so they come in, they get, there's a story, it all happens. And we send them in small groups to have their first magic experience. The first magic experience, universally, for everybody, was terrible. The mm-hmm. performers, they're like, oh, that first group, they just, terrible, you know. And the groups changed, right? So it wasn't a bad group. It was the yep. fact that it was the first experience. And, and here's what I learned from that. Yep. We failed to give them a collective experience that told them how they should respond. Yes. Had we had a magic act at the beginning, just a simple dove act or something, show them, oh, performers, you can, you know, this is okay. Yeah. But this whole time they were like, we don't know what to do. So we're making the same point from two different sides. Okay. Which is... Uh, they don't have a way to think about it. So their preconceived notion is, I'm supposed to wait till the end of the thing to react. Oh, now, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So, they're, so they're reacting right. at every piece, but they don't know that it's okay to react when you want to react. Yet. Because it is that early. Well, but you know what? But I, think, I don't think that's limited to the castle. I think that's true for every... I mean, how many people know how to react in a magic show? I mean, let's that's face, true too, right? Sure, yeah. So, and 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 let's also be honest here. Why do people think that they are supposed to react a certain way? It's because we as magicians have taught us taught them that. Yes, that's correct. So, I mean, yeah. so when I when they come in, as you saw in my show, yeah. as they're filing in, I'm sitting in the front, yeah, and I'm bantering, and and I'm doing this for several reasons. Uh, a, a practical reason being, if you 
people have started drinking and you put them in that room and mm -hmm. they just sit there with nothing to do mm -hmm. and it's quiet, they get sleepy and all the energy zaps out of the room. Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm just keeping the energy on simmer mm -hmm. when I'm doing that. That's yeah. all I'm doing. But it also starts to let them know that it's okay to talk back because that's what I want in my show. Mm -hmm. My show, I really want... I'm not doing tricks. Mm -hmm. I couldn't care less about the tricks in the show. In fact, I honestly, what I'm performing, I, unless something weird happens, like I knock over a cup or something, I probably don't think at all, honestly. And I'm not trying to say braggy or whatever, but mm -hmm. I, if I think about it, I really, at this point, probably don't think at all mm -hmm. about any of the things my hands are doing. Mm -hmm. All I'm paying attention to is the audience. Mm -hmm. Where are they? Are, is there an opportunity for engagement here? Do I need to goose them? Can I can I pull them? Can I drag them down? How far can I expand the parameters here? Yeah. And, you know, anything that happens, I want... Because the show is what happens. You know, but just like my show. It's not your show. No, it's the, our show because yeah. we're in the room. Yeah. And what happens in the audience will be part of your show. Yeah. They're going to remember that because it happened then. We're all in this together. And if they weren't there, they wouldn't be a show. So, you know, I was doing a thing for... Uh, I have some friends in Austin, and they've got this really cool magic space, the Magic Dojo, and they're doing some cool magic parties where some, some guys come in and they workshop, you know, in the weekends, and then once a month they throw a party and they bring friends and they do magic for them. It's really a neat idea, and I, I hope they're going to be very successful. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of that. I'm going to be part. I hope to be part of that success. Mm -hmm. But um, first party I went to, they were having some uh, a little kind of close up y show, probably about forty people and people. The magicians were performing one after each other. And there were some kids there, right? It wasn't supposed to be a kid thing, but some parents brought their kids, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and they told the kids, look, this isn't a kid thing. No, 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 that's cool. So anyway, each of the three performers before me come out. And, you know, oh, I need a volunteer. Of course, the kids would raise their hand. No, no, I need somebody a little older. Boom, 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 boom. So, and this kept happening. And I'm watching this. And yeah. yeah, I know it's not a kid thing. And I and I went through that phase when I was a little bit younger too, where I was like, kids, whatever. You know, here's the truth. I'm probably performed for more kids in a year than any other magician alive. Because I do a whole uh, series of venues where I'm performing for 800, 900 kids a night, right? So I love working for kids. Burt Wonderstone, people poo-poo that movie. One of the greatest lines in a movie is in that, about magic, which is, why would you begrudge performing for people you know who love what you do. Mm -hmm. Kids love what you do. Why, why do magicians like, oh, I don't do magic for kids? What kind of pompous ass are you? Mm -hmm. Our job is to do magic. Yep. Who cares if it's a kid or an adult? You're giving them a magic moment. Mm -hmm. That's our gift. If we don't share it, because somebody's... Cause they're, anyway, whatever. <laughs> so, um, uh, but the point being... Oh, what was the point being? Um... So anyway, so there's these kids obviously there and they want to participate. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to work. So I go on last. Unfortunately, the couple of kids, they, they'd taken the kids out then. And I was sad and I mentioned that. And they went and they got the one girl. You know, mm -hmm. She was still up. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do something just for you. Mm -hmm. And I did just the simplest thing. But you know what? That was the show. Yeah. You know, our audience is the show. I, I think the worst things that we as magicians, and I've talked about this elsewhere, but one of the worst things we as magicians teach ourselves is that magic is the replication of the practice perfect. Mm -hmm. We stand in front of the mirror or our video camera and we get it perfect, perfect, perfect. And then we go out and do the exact same thing. Dumbest idea that's ever been taught. Yep. 
because it, that's like the Country Bear Jamboree. Now, I love the Country Bear Jamboree. Don't get me wrong. You know, you know the Country Bear Jamboree. I don't know no, it's it a Dis- it was Disneyland Disney World attraction. Uh, it's animatronic. Oh bears, yes, okay. Right? Yes, they I'm press right. the button and the bears do the same show every time, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's a charming little show, and it's great. And the reason it's great is because it was done very well. Yeah. But that's not live performance. Mm-hmm. The moment I, the moment my show becomes just me trying to replicate what I practiced. I should just show you a video of my practice session. Yeah. Because there's no difference. There's no life in it. And the life comes from the audience. Yeah. So magic is not the replication. The performance of magic is not the replication of the practice perfect. It is an active, active creation. And here's the analogy I use. It's like you're throwing a pot, right? Mm -hmm. So in my practice room, in my studio, I practice making this little ceramic pot. It's beautiful. And I practice until it's the exact perfect pot I want. And I can do it every time, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm really not learning is how to make the perfect pot. What I'm really learning is how to deal with all the weird stuff that comes up that keeps me from making the perfect. And I've always got that one goal. Well, when I get on stage, Mm -hmm. there's no pot. Mm -hmm. The pot's in my mind. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, create this, but... I don't know what kind of clay I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. So my job is to take whatever clay I'm given mm-hmm. and try to make this idea that I have. Yeah. And it's never going to match. Yeah. Because sometimes a handle will fall off. Well, great. You can still make a beautiful one-handed pot. Maybe you can use that handle to make a little filigree that you didn't have. Yeah. And here's the reason this perspective, I think, is beneficial for magicians. Is it should free you from fear mm-hmm. because to the audience there's nothing our fear comes from this worry that what we're going to do won't live up to what we just did but what we just did doesn't exist all yeah. that matters is what you're going to do and the truth is you're the most qualified person at that time to do it mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you're not going to do it chances are nobody else would yeah so you might as well just go out and do it. Now, that doesn't mean you don't practice throwing the pot because what that does is that it teaches you how to deal with those situations that you might arise. But that's what rehearsal is. Rehearsal isn't just practices learning the techniques. Rehearsal is trying to figure out all those things that could go wrong so that when you're live, you can be totally free mm-hmm. and know that no matter what happens, I got this covered. I screwed up a trick the other night. So I do a trick where... Uh, a card is picked. Mm-hmm. I shuffle the cards all face up and face down. Mm-hmm. Whatever the suit of the card they picked is, uh, I using sleight of hand techniques, I uh, reverse all the cards of that suit and put them in order. Yeah, it's a great trick. I forgot to have the card picked. <laughs> I don't know. I was just chatting, whatever. You know, the cards and the face up and the face down. What was the suit of your card? They didn't pick a card. Now, you know, Magic Castle, first show, I don't know if it was my first show of the night, maybe the first show of the night, but but you know, you're standing there and you're like, okay, what now? Well, thankfully, I'm in charge. What do I need? I just need a suit to be named. Yeah. Right? Diamonds, clubs, hearts, she names the suit, boom, I turn it over. Yeah. Uh, but I could not have done that, you know, if, so you see what I'm saying? So yeah. You have to be comfortable with the material to right. be able to And that's why, it. and you know, and another thing I'm a huge proponent of is scripting. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. My show hopefully doesn't sound scripted. Okay. Uh, you'd be a better judge of that than me. But um, it's incredibly scripted. And because it's incredibly scripted, that allows me to go totally off script whenever I want. Yep. 
Because you know where the train tracks are. I know where it has to go. Yeah. And I know where to get back. And I know I hear, oh, I wing it. Oh, I've got a thing and whatever. All, every person I've ever known who said that, you can tell they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And the worst part is, is because they'll end up saying things that undermine the tricks themselves. Yeah. And that always kills me. That always kills me. Yeah. There's a, there's a hundred percent, there's a value in improvisation and playing with the audience, but you have to know where you're going and how it works. And you have to have put thought into it that deeply to be able to do it justice when you right. do go off script. Well, because you have to remember magic, unlike any other of the performance arts, because we're delivering a deceptive experience Mm -hmm. requires certain benchmarks right if we want the audience to go a plus b plus c and get to d yeah well they have to really be clear and see the a and the b and the c you need those anchor points or else you can't have a trick yeah you know most of the time when a magic trick most you know people show me magic tricks all the time Charlie Reynolds, who was one of the great magic consultants of all time, his wife, Regina, brilliant woman, whenever she would watch an illusion, although this is true of almost any trick, she would ask three questions. What happened? How else? And who cares? Mm -hmm. What happened? Just what happened? So often I think people are so unclear about what they're doing, what their effect is. You get to the end and yeah, I see the two cards are the same, but I don't know why they're the same. Mm I mean, how? Was yeah. it just a coincidence? Were we related by some weird blood pack ritual? Did you hypnotize me to make me think this? Did you magically cause one card to transform into the match of the other? I don't know. Yeah. When people at the end of the magic trick go, how did you do that? I don't think they're always asking for the method. Mm-hmm. I think, because I think if people were truly fooled, their response, and I've experimented with this, they say, wow, that's impossible. Oh my goodness. When people say, how'd you do that? I don't think they're really asking for the method. Mm -hmm. I think what they're kind of saying subconsciously but out loud is, how did that come about? Because they're not sure what really happened. Mm -hmm. But if you structure your routine so it's clear the power that's causing it, be it I snap my fingers or look, you two look into each eyes and deal cards until you stop. When, you know, every magic trick we we do, we should be able to ask, an audience member should be able to ask us, how did you do that? And you should be able to give them an answer that's not the method. How do you do this? Oh, there's a synchronicity. When you look into each other's eyes, there's something that just, I don't know if it's like body language or reading or whatever. You know, we wouldn't say, oh, we, you know, we shuffle the cards into the right place. We, you yeah. wouldn't say that. Uh, you know, or, you know, I, how do you do that? Oh, no, when I pass my hand over the card, something occurs in that shadow. I'm not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a dramatic fiction. There's an obvious method to it. Yeah. So that's important. The second question I often, uh, Regina would ask would be how else? Mm-hmm. Which with illusions is pretty obviously. So often people look at illusions and they they are a little transparent. Magic, we particularly close-up magic, we have so many methods at the possi- possibility. I usually end up asking, well, why that method? You know, why that one over another one? Because if there's a thousand ways to do it, just because it's different doesn't make it better. Yeah. If it doesn't change how I feel, and which gets to the third point, who cares? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, if you can show me a trick, and you can even fool me with the trick, but that doesn't mean I'm going to care. Yeah. Now, as a magician, you know, if it's clever, I might care about the method. You might get excited. I have it. this unique value system, but my audiences don't. Yep. <laughs> so just because I like a trick is no, is, has no bearing on whether or not that's actually a good trick for the real world or not. Yeah. 
And I learned that lesson the hard way. When I was uh, in high school, I d- went on a band trip to... Uh, what did you play? Trumpet. To uh, Daytona Beach. <laughs> you are such a trumpet player. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, do you know the trumpet player handshake? No, I don't. What's that? Hi, I'm better than you. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so it's also a good magician handshake. Uh, but... Um, so we were at Daytona Beach for a band trip. There's a magic shop across the street, right? Mm-hmm. Harry Allen's Daytona Magic. I go there, of course, every day. You know, the, the, the skinny kids and the cool kids are on the beach. I'm in the magic shop. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he's trying to sell me stuff, as he should. And he shows me this trick. Because that's Harry. <laughs> yeah. And it's this minimalism trick. And he does it for me. And uh, he says, are you interested? And I said, uh, you know, no, I don't think so. Because I, I, know, I, I know how it works. Mm-hmm. And he said something to me. He says, well, you know what? I expect you to know how it works. He says you're you're you know he knew me as I was young, but I was well read. And he goes, you know how you know how to think about magic. Of course, you're going to see how it's done, but you're not doing the magic for you. You're doing magic for the audience. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd like to say at that moment I had a profound revelation, and you know, I bought the prop because uh, I, I saw my artistic pack for it. No, I just yeah. felt really guilty, yeah. and I bought it anyway. Right? I was like, sure. So, uh, like every good high school magician, I'm going to do the trick that night with uh, very little practice. Uh, so I'm hanging around in the lobby waiting for people to pay attention to me. Uh-huh. And the band director and some of the seniors come by and, you know, they know I'm a magician. So I did a couple of tricks and then I did that trick for them. Mm-hmm. And the response it got was profound mm-hmm. compared to everything else. Sure. And and also compared to what I was doing at the day. I mean, but yeah. but it was the strongest reaction probably any trick I'd ever gotten. Yeah. And, you know, the band director talked about that forever. And then here's the deal. Years later, like my sister's now in high, I'm in college and she's going off to a band camp that he's now teaching at. This is years later and I go along and of all, he asked me about that trick. Mm -hmm. And what a very powerful lesson. It's not about what I know. Mm -hmm. It's not about what I see. It's not about what I can figure out. It's not even about necessarily what I like. Although I think of performers choices should always be but anyway sure um it's about what feelings we can give to our audience Mm -hmm. and that means we have to decide who are we really doing this for yeah are we doing it for ourselves because it pleases us or are we doing this because this is an experience that we want to give others and i feel i get great pleasure in giving people that experience yeah but the pleasure i get is in giving that experience not in doing the trick because it, now having said that being a, I actually am an amateur magician as well mm-hmm. I love doing tricks yep. you know and like all of us you know I love my new toy so I think that we have it's you know what you said at the beginning it comes back to self-awareness yeah and this self-awareness starts with why do I really want to do this and then commit to it because what you, here's the problem the guys that say you're not a real magician unless you're doing shows, those guys are lying to you. Yeah. And the guys who say, oh, you're not a real magician unless other magicians want to buy your tricks, those guys are probably lying to you and, and, and trying to scam you at the same time. Yeah. Right? And then the people who say, oh, you're not a real magician unless you're doing the tricks that the great new magician, those, those guys are definitely lying to you. Right? As my friend Eugene Berger says, magic is a house with many rooms. Mm-hmm. And I believe all are welcome here. As long as you treat the house with respect. Yeah. So what room do you want to be in? If you want, ju- if you just love sitting and doing this stuff for yourself 
embrace it. When you go to the magic clubs or see the man and they say, oh, I'm doing this or I'm doing this, don't fall prey to that nonsense because half of them are lying. Yeah. Half of them are lying anyway about what they're doing. The, you know, with age comes the ability to sincerely say, and I used to say this as a kid, but I didn't mean it. But you get to a point where at some point you go, what, you know what? I, I, it's not that I don't care what other people think because I'm trying to be iconoclastic or different or powerful. It's because at this point, I'm so into doing what it is that I want to do that it doesn't matter what other people are doing and thinking. Mm -hmm. and, and what's weird is it's not isolating. That doesn't isolate you. In magic, I feel, it brings you closer to others because now every other magician that's doing their own thing can feel safe around me. Yes. Preach. <laughs> because we can now share ideas yeah. fully and openly because I know that any idea I share with you, you're going to use in a way that's going to make you better and different. Mm -hmm. If you see something and you choose to do it, I ask myself, does this make me more resemble a magician or am I using it in a way that's going to set me apart? Mm -hmm. If it makes me more resemble, oh, I like the way Darren Brown does this, I'm going to do this. That makes me more like Darren Brown. Yeah. That's not an artistic choice. And even if you're doing this just for fun to please yourself, unless Darren's giving you permission, I think that you're on, you're, you're being kind of a jerk. Yeah. But if I could see an idea and I go, oh, if I do this here, then I'm doing something that that's making me different. That, that kind of theft is we need all of, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Teller said famously, uh, hate breeds more good art than love. Because if I love something and I copy it, it makes me similar, mm -hmm. which is not artistic. But if I hate something and it inspires me to do something <laughs> different, yeah. then we're creating something new. So I there's and but but to do that you have to be self-aware and honest. So if you want to do this for yourself, do it for yourself and enjoy it. Um, you know, if you want to do it for other magicians, do it for other magicians. If you're going to sell products, you know, it'd be nice if what you sold actually worked. That you'd really, you know, I don't understand this. I come up with an idea and I publish it. I said, you know, it gets back to that. We're all pissing on our own territory. Yeah. Because to them, those people, those people, are, they're not magicians. They're using magic. Mm -hmm. They're using magic for this personal validation kind of thing. Yep. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with a young person using magic as personal validation. The problem is when, you know, there's a 40-year-old guy doing it. And whether that's in the magic community as we're talking about or, you know, as we see them in life, using them to, you know, as a social crutch or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, that, that, that part is a digression. Uh, I had never, I'd never heard that quote from Teller, but that yeah. resonates with me deeply. As the listeners know, <laughs> I had a castle experience where I saw somebody do a show in the museum and it made me so uncomfortable that when I was asked to perform later, everything that I did was a direct uh, opposition to yeah, what I had said. Yeah, response, seen. commentary. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So... That feels good. I feel no, I feel but, good but that's that. true, you know. And but you know, but that you know, that's given me a lot of magicians who have only known me from my writings, 
because apparently I can come across as an ass when I write. Uh, <laughs> I can also come across as an ass in a person, but that's only because they don't talk to me. And that's just because I'm deep, you know, actually I'm kind of weirdly shy and standoffish. I'm not the kind of guy necessarily, unless I'm working. If I'm working, if, you know, that's my role. But yeah. on my own, I just, you know, don't really want to bother anybody. Yeah. But, um, uh, where was I going with that? Um, I want to say... I had only known you from your writing, and then seeing you perform, I was like, that guy's warm and endearing. And I know, right? Like, what the fuck is this guy, right? That's not the guy that's always writing. Well, you know, because... Uh, I, I mean, I get it. I yeah, understand. Well, but part of it is also, you know, it, as I tell people when I start working with them, or if I'm working with groups of magicians, and I'm going to be talking to them, and particularly if we're going to get into arguments, and I love arguing, I love arguing. Uh, but my, um, you know, as I say, don't confuse passion for personal. Sure. You know, but that's saying, you know, ma- and, but magicians, we've, we're, we're so freaking thin skinned. I mean, um, you know, back in the day, artists would get into duels over competing artistic philosophies. Mm-hmm. There'd be riots in the streets. And now, you know, we get all chafed when somebody calls us out for being saying something stupid on you know the magic cafe or you know i'm like come on guys if you if you don't if you can't do that i mean you know i it just if you're passionate about it jump in i mean we can argue we can be you know tom stone and i just went on a vicious back and forth i mean it was intense yeah uh about uh this uh the fearless girl statue on wall street and yeah uh the ethics of that and the copyright of that and uh you know, we went at it back and forth, art pieces and whatever. But you know, and and, you, and we would jab each other too. But at least I left thinking we were just as good as when we started. And I think he did because it wasn't personal. It was now, yeah. Of course, it would get a little personal at times because we, you know, yeah, uh, got you there. Poke and uh, but that's because he and I are equally passionate about this. And and to me, I I love to. I would rather disagree with someone than agree with. Again, hate breeds more good art with love. In love because by disagreeing with you I can hone my argument yeah but agreeing with you I get no better mm-hmm. you know I'm one of these raging you know liberal uh, you know left wing you know so if you see my posts on Facebook you know I can be pretty bitter but you know I'm the kind of guy that listens almost exclusively to Fox News and Rush Limbaugh mm-hmm. because to hear people with whom I agree does me no good yeah I want to hear what the other people are thinking I want to be challenged by those thoughts I want that's that's how I want to hone my uh, or sharpen my sword. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if you're just around people that agree with you, where's the fun in that? Yeah, and and I'll sometimes argue against people on things I fundamentally agree with, just because I want to see maybe they've got a different take on, you know, this principle or this argument or something that I I don't have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we get better. Uh, I you know I, I had a great trumpet teacher once who taught me um, the path to success is to turn your weaknesses into your strengths. So if you do something poorly, and it's most literal sense, and I've taken this to a little bit different level, but um, if you do something poorly, if you can raise that to be your best thing, then you're a better player. Yeah. And then you take the next. But if you spend your whole life just taking the things you do best and working on those, you're not really improving. Yeah. You're becoming such a specialist that, you know, just this one or two little things. So I think that... You know, I love flaws. You know, I love to have them pointed out. I love to hone them. I love to find the the holes in the argument because that's the only way you get better. Yeah. 
Um, but it's tough, and, and I but I think I know where a lot of it comes from. Of course, again, you know, magicians, we're all egocentric. We, you know, if the I think I haven't thought of it in these terms, I haven't put it in these words, but I think it's true. I mean, if you think about it, these magic cafe posts and stuff, they're really a performance, aren't they? Mm-hmm. This is the way we're performing for each other, but mm-hmm. through a non visual media, we're, we're ex- instead of exposing our magical knowledge, skills, and ability through a performance, we're doing it through words. And you know, people's egos are always wrapped up in that. Um, but I had a revelation years ago. You know, I would notice when people would offer me ideas after a show, friends even, right? Sure. There were generally two reactions I would have. Uh, three reactions. Sometimes they'd say something and you would go, you're absolutely fucking right. You know, I just, I didn't even think about it. You're absolutely right, okay? Yeah. So things obviously you agree with, right? And those, that's a neutral feeling, mm-hmm. right? You're like, oh, I get it. You're right. There's there's a non-feelingful response on my yeah. end. It's immediate. Uh, right, right. Yeah. And then there are people who would say things that I just knew were so wrong or they didn't apply or I've thought about it. I've worked it out. I know for a fact that this isn't, I appreciate they're giving the idea. I understand where it's coming from, but they just don't get what I'm doing in the big scheme or they don't, or maybe I've, con- I was like, you know, I've considered, I've got worked out. When that happens, mm-hmm. My feeling is also neutral. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people give you a comment or a note, and your feeling isn't neutral, is it? It kind of gets a little defensive, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I realized that at that moment, that was me telling myself, you're not sure. And it's troubling. It bothers me. So when you tell me something and I go, well, but, and, mm, and, but I'm doing it and I'm feeling, and I feel, it's not what I say. It's not my response. It's what I'm feeling. When I hear it and I feel that, I feel like they're pointing out a weakness. Yeah. That means I have not given that idea enough thought that I've truly convinced myself. Mm -hmm. Because if I know they're right, I don't feel anything. Yeah. When I know they're wrong, I don't feel anything. But when I feel something, that tells me that I'm not completely confident yet yeah. that I'm right. Because then I can't judge it. Yeah. So I would notice, and I, I do that online. You know, you see that online. You know? I've done it too. When, yeah. you know, when you say something and somebody starts getting that defensive, you know, I think that's usually a sign that, and I knew that was for me. It was like, it was proof that, oh, I don't know. So then the question is, how do we handle that? And what do we do with it? And what yeah. do we work? But that that to me, I share that because that became an interesting emotional barometer mm-hmm. for my show, which was when people would give me ideas. You know, my buddy Adam Rubin, you know, uh, last night we were talking. And, <sighs> Damn, I didn't get to see him last night. Yeah, that's right. All right. Uh, yeah, he, you know, he, he said a couple things and, you know, three things. One of them, I agree with completely. The other two... You know, I, I was I was feeling that, but but he was right. I mean, one was a line that I used, and one was a little thing that I do, and uh, and one I knew it was right. That made me sad because I knew it wasn't perfect. It, I have a good line there, but it's not the right line. And then the other one was disappointing to me because it's something that I knew worked, but the way I, I the way I was doing it. It was not coming across the way I wanted to, so I felt disappointed in myself. Do you mind giving the examples just to? Oh yeah, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I do this weird little thing in my show where I pull my arms to my side and go, "Yay, magic!" Mm-hmm. 
And it was something I did on a lark once and it, it, it was, it worked and then I worked through it and it, it's become a thing. Um, and the reason I do it is, uh, for people who don't know me, I've got a big beard and a mustache and I'm balding on top. I love the beard, I, by the way. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I yeah. Like I, I feel it's made me at least 80% wiser. Uh, and I wear a suit and I, you know, and people, and I do, I'm not a smiley person as a rule when I'm just walking around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do. And, and when I start a show, sometimes I can be, and I, in the castle, my, I intentionally keep that, that show almost entirely upbeat and fun and light and comedy. But other venues, mm-hmm. you know, I can get really heavy. Yeah. So this little goofy, yay. It so undercuts everything about me yeah. uh, that it, it the goal is to humanize me. Mm-hmm. And it's not to undercut the magic, but I use it at these just little points to let people, you know, when they're having a profound magic moment, when I'm ready to kind of bring them back to me, that's kind of what I use that for is, you know, I, I'm not trying to undercut the moment. I want that to ride, but then it's just kind of a way of, folk. anyway. Uh, Adam thought that that seemed like I was being kind of insincere and kind of like mocking, like, hey, magic, like, oh, this is goofy, mm-hmm. as opposed to genuinely expressing my happiness yeah. that this had happened. Yeah. And, you know, I was a little tired last night. I mean, I was. So, and I, there were times when I did it because I knew I did it then, as opposed yeah. to it being a legitimate feeling. Yeah. And I shouldn't have done that. And he called me on it, and he was right. And the other is with the sponge bunnies. I do the sponge bunnies. I think the sponge bunnies is one of the greatest tricks in magic. And I think I have an argument that kind of proves it conclusively, uh, scientifically even. But uh, the sponge bunnies, I do a line. And I do the line, honestly, kind of as a homage to Del Rey, who was a huge influence on me. He was one of the greatest magicians who ever lived that many magicians had never heard of. And Mm -hmm. they did a book about him recently. And um, it's a great book. But look... I got to sit and watch Del Rey in almost ideal circumstances. And it was real magic. I mean, I had never seen magic like that before in my life. And for an hour, hour and a half, just boom, boom, boom. Just, uh, and here's the way, Del was so good. I, believe it or not, I knew how everything he did worked. Yeah. And it never crossed my mind a single moment that that's what he was doing. He got me so caught up I in the reality of this love moment that feeling that I did it didn't even cross my mind. Now, how did I know this? I knew his best friend and I knew what his best friend did and I knew that what that best friend did and how that could work and I knew Del and worked with him. So I this technique that I knew about yeah. was in play. Yeah. Right? And I'm not going to go any further than that. Never crossed my mind. Even though they were literally having dinner next to, you know, talking next to in front of mine. So, but just Dell created, he had these little animals that would come to life, you know, a, 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 a bunny and a frog that would stand up in his hand and a little mouse that would run across the table and uh, pick out cards. And he had this little bird that would call dice shots and read people's minds. But it was the way he would interact with these things. Um, well, here's the deal. I mean, even, even knowing how he was actually do, doing it, you could do all of these things by a simple remote control, mm-hmm. right? But here's the deal. When Dell performed it, you didn't think remote control. It just didn't cross your mind because that bird was real to yeah. you. Mm-hmm. He created real magic. And, and I believe that there's real magic. Uh, 
for a couple of reasons. So the one, to me, imagine you're going, people ask me, Brad, is, is magic real? And I say, absolutely it is. You go to um, a scary movie, a really scary movie. Are the monsters real? Do the people really die? Of course not. You know that. I know that. But the feeling we get in that movie, the tension, the fear, the excitement, mm -hmm. those feelings are real. Well, magic is the feeling we get when that which we know is impossible occurs undeniably in our presence. It's not what we do, and it's especially not how we do it. Mm -hmm. It's the feeling we convey to our audience, which is undeniably real. It's the moment the hair stands up on the back of their neck. Well, a couple of shows ago, I had a girl literally start crying. It was just such a powerful, visceral experience for her. Magic is real. It's just not what we think it is. Yep. We're looking in the wrong place. The tricks are the misdirection. Mm -hmm. I'm not performing the tricks. I'm manipulating the tension of the audience. Tension, release. Consonance, dissonance, resolution, levels, volume, energy, rhythm. These are the abstract tools that a painter or a musician would use. Yeah. They're common to all arts. The tricks are just the paint. Mm -hmm. The slights are the brush. They're the media. They're not the art. They're not the piece of art. And they're not the results of the art. Mm -hmm. That all exists in the audience mm -hmm. and nowhere else. So for that reason, I say magic is real. And then um, my other take on that is, let's think of it. We know that an experience, the experience of a person to a stimuli is identical, whether that stimuli is genuine or, or fictitious. So uh, if I see something that's real versus something that's fake, to the degree that they're similar, right? The same chemicals get released, right? The same neurons get fired, mm -hmm. the same emotional response. That's why when we go to a play, we can have a cathartic experience. We don't really know that person. That person is not really dying, but to the degree that it simulates reality and they've touched us to the degree that another person, it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, think about this. We as human beings exist for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to feel. Every decision we make is based on how it makes us feel, mm -hmm. really, right? And we manipulate those feelings. Now, people say that they think alcohol and drugs, but it's more than that. When we want to feel um, uh, happy, we go see a comedy or, or you know, uh, go to a comedy club. If we want to feel love, we go to a romantic comedy or a strip club, depending on your particular taste. If you want to feel horror, you know, you'll manipulate your emotions by going to a haunted house or a, movies do a lot of this stuff, as you yeah. see. Arts do a lot of this stuff. But the most profound emotional quest, desire, longing in, in human beings is probably the experience of mystery. And who do people have to turn to for that? Mm -hmm. It should be the magician. But how often do they think to do that? They don't. No. Because we've, in a large measure, run away from the mystery. Trivialized the mystery. Well, we're afraid of it. Most magicians are afraid of their power. I know I was. Mm -hmm. And that's because most of us, as Max pointed out, kind of got into it when we were young to compensate for a lack of powerness. You know, we, we saw the magic. We wanted, oh, if I can do this, they'll like me. If I can do this, I'll have their attention. You know, we like that. I mean, that, that's part of the drug. Um, but no, you have to, you, the magician has to embrace the power. You have to, and, and magic, and, and we were talking about this earlier. You know, people say, oh, people don't believe in magic. 
bullshit. Of course they believe in magic. Yeah. Whether it's called the secret or uh, you know the universe thing or people people want to believe in magic. You know, the only people who say people don't believe in magic are, are skeptics and assholes, basically. Who, you know, who, who want to take the fun of But I don't believe it. You may not believe in magic. And magicians tell me all the time, oh, you can't make people believe magic is real. No, you can't make people believe <laughs> magic is real. I know I have. Mm-hmm. I know I have. Uh, and, and I'm not special. Yeah. People can do this. Uh, and it's because people do want to believe. I mean... That's just more affirming. Yeah. And that's why what we do, we, you know, that's why I think people hate magicians so much is because the promise of what we can do is so profound and so seldom do we deliver. Yeah. We have them deal three rows of seven cards. We hide a coin behind our finger in a bent position and we expect nobody to know that it's really there. Three coins fly from one hand to the other and back and again they go back and... Again, they go back and great, but what are you going to do for me? Yeah. <laughs> so magic is incredibly profound and 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 I I think deep, and people can love it, but but magicians have to come to terms with that first, and that takes a lot of uh, growing up to do. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, most of us look at this as our toys. You know, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. No. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with having powerful toys too. Sure. I mean, there, there's, yes. you know, it just. I think we have to think about what we're really doing and why we're really doing it. Well, we have to think about who others. we are and what it is that we want to express through our art. Otherwise, it's not art; it's a demonstration of craft. Yes, yes. I, I, you know, again, because I'm very picky. You know, when I hear people say, I, "I want to express something through the art," that's a completely valid thing to do with art. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only thing you can do with art. Because when people say express something with the art, that often means that people take that to mean I have a message, I have some story I want to tell, I want to tell people something about myself. All valid. Sure. But not the only. Agreed. Something that's beautiful for the sake of beautiful. Is yes. It? Just it's giving also- you a feeling because yep. of that feeling. Mm-hmm. I can do an incredibly trivial magic trick. Yeah. But I can do it artistically because my goal is to manipulate, to convey a, a feelingful response to mm. you. Yeah. Now, what goes into that feelingful response? We it it can be it could be almost anything. That's your authentic intentionality of it, which yes. is and intention is the crisp, is the critical term. Yeah. What is the intention? Without an intention, you cannot have art. Uh, one of the secrets of mystery school was the first rule of magic is intention, and that's true. But the corollary that must extend before then is engagement. Because mm-hmm. you must be engaged with yourself before you can have a proper intention. Yep. And you must engage with your audience before you can uh, enact this intention. Yeah. And engagement is the key. We have to engage our audiences. And that's what my whole show is about. Mm-hmm. That's why I come out and I sit in front. I'm starting to engage them. We're building a, reputa- a, 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 a relationship. Mm-hmm. So when I come out on stage for that first time, we're a lot closer to where I need us to be. Mm-hmm. And then the whole time is is me trying to get to win you over to relax mm-hmm. and trust me. You know, when this girl a few nights ago, Alfonso was in the audience, she was having, you know, a really intense experience. And I sat with, I looked at her and I said, 
you're the luckiest person here. Mm-hmm. People go their whole lives wanting to have the experience you're about to have right now. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the ride, kid. I mean, how cool is that that we can do that for people? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and she did. She had the greatest night of her life. I want to get back to the bunnies. Yes, the but, bunnies. But before we do that, I'm trying to remember what I was saying about uh, intentionality and expressing your art and being self-aware and how important it is. Uh, I think we covered it. The yeah, bunnies. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So I had a line in the bunnies. that Oh, it's the Del Rey line. Mm-hmm. So uh, I pull out the bunny. This is Mama Bunny. And I take out another bunny. And I go, this is... P-. And I look at like the... the I flip the bunny over. Mm-hmm. And and I check myself and go, oh no, this is Mama Bunny. Mm-hmm. This is it's like I missexed them. Is yeah. what it is. That's a cute line, right? Mm-hmm. And Dell used to do this thing. He's like, oh, do you know how to, you know how to tell he's a mama? Uh, she's a female. Uh, she's got clean feet. Mm-hmm. Now Dell did that with a different prop. He had a uh, he would hand out. Uh, how did he do it? So he would hand out a little rabbit, and you say, take a look at that, and. Uh, Whenever he handed to somebody, the person would turn it over and he'd go, oh, it's a boy. It's a boy. (laughs) Uh, You know how to tell? Uh, He's got dirty feet. Girl bunnies don't have dirty feet. It was a cute little line. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so my little homage to him is as I take him out of the pocket. This is Mama Bunny. This is, oh, no, sorry. This is Mama Bunny. This is Mm -hmm. Papa Bunny. I said, do you know how to tell him apart? Mama Bunny has clean feet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then sometimes I say, oh, what were you thinking? Pervert. Uh, and it's just a cute little throwaway bit, you know, because I do want to identify one as mom as one as papa. Yeah. And Adam thought that the joke wasn't quite as strong as it could be. And he's right. I mean, it's not a killer joke, but it's not meant to, I don't want a killer joke there. I mean, I do want a little boom. Uh, but he rightfully pointed out, he said that some people actually probably find that confusing, that they think there actually is a difference in the bunnies. Mm-hmm. And there isn't. Uh, so what I do is I say mama and our papa, and they're clearly, and I put one in my hand, one in the other guy, a standard bit, and oh, look, they've changed places. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's leading up to, is the fact that they are the same. Yeah. Uh, but no, he pointed out that that wasn't a, a great line, so uh, I'm going to rethink that, and I might try another line this night. We're, you know, uh, here's the mama. No, that's, no, oh, do you know how to tell them apart? Why do we have them to tell them apart? Why can't it just be a spectrum? I don't know. Maybe that's... Maybe, maybe, I like yeah. that better. I, I really do like that much better. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, you know, and that's one of the great things about the practical side of the art of magic is, is that funny? I don't know. You mm-hmm. laughed. Yeah. Adam thought it was kind of funny. But then again, you're sitting here in this room. Yeah. It's just the two of us. Adam and I were just standing at the bottom of the castle hill. Once you get those 30 people in that room... It's a whole different game. Well, I have written down what the social responsibility of a magician is. Because okay. such of the stereotype of magicians is... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sexist and awful. Oh, yeah. Well, well magicians are people. Mm-hmm. People are sometimes sexist and awful. Mm-hmm. And uh, magicians sometimes are... A little less self-aware mm-hmm. than I would like, myself included. You know, for many years of my life, mm-hmm. just uh, oh, and particularly with the the dirty sex. You know, you know. But we so the social responsibility. I'm not sure that magicians should ever be held up as beacons of what 
real human being should turn to for advice on what's proper, you know, ways of dealing with people. Uh, I think that would be just misguided on their part. Uh, I think the issue is more Mm in-house. I think we as magicians, not not necessarily, I mean, it is with a concern for the larger outside world, but I think we need to clean it up inside. But this, I mean, look, Max Maven is, you know, has collected lots of information on incredibly racist magic tricks. I mean, in magic tricks, there are, you know, uh, the Jap box, mm-hmm. chink-a-chink. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a trick from my collection. It's a magic trick where you turn yourself into a black person by leaving the room and coming back with a black cloth over your head. It's from mm-hmm. the 1850s. I mean, it's quite possibly the most racist magic trick ever invented. Uh, but magic is replete with, you know, the Al Josen, the king of clubs and Tarbell. Uh, and that's just the racism. Yeah. <laughs> then there's the sexism, mm-hmm. you know, or, and race, you know, like, oh, like the Buddha tubes, right? Mm-hmm. So you put a girl in a, a sequined girl in a tube that's covered with the religious icon of a Buddha and you sort, you know, uh, shove swords through it. Yeah. You know, but, the, but also Western culture, you know, took a little catch and magic is, let's face it. There's a great cartoon of magic shops from 1850 and then 1920 and then 1950 today. You know, it's all the same crap, right? So so magic is, for some reason, and I think I I, I might have a theory or two why, but is for some reason kind of always behind the times. Yeah. Right, on that. The sexism issue, though, oh my goodness. And I used to be the worst... Uh, you know, all of them. Here, blow on my balls magically. I mean, give them a magic blow. No, I mean, blow on my balls magically. Whatever the line was, you know. Yeah. And and I was in college, and I was an idiot. And and now college boys doing goofy body tricks for college boys is one thing. I, I, I We wrote a couple of tricks when I was in college that would curl your air. And that I actually have tremendous respect for. Because it's, you know, if it's a dirty trick that's intended to be a dirty X-rated trick and that's it's just embracing it... Yeah. You know, yes, that's a that's an offensive piece of magic, and I was, and if that's what you want to do, great, be do that. Yeah. But it's those little things. The magician, uh, pa- look, magicians have this idea. So many magicians think that magic is going to get them laid. Mm-hmm. You know, if I do this trick for the girl, she's going to like me. I mean, uh, and so we see them say these awful things. Uh, and you know, the truth of the matter is, though. In particularly close-up situations, there are sexual moments that arise. I don't know if you were at... I hope, were you at the show with the woman that licked the magic wand? No. Oh, no. This girl, I mean, she was she was going to play the game, and I brought her down, and, and I, I thought I could... She, it was a tough ride, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone had a great time, though, because she was memorable. So stuff happens, right? I don't think we have to be prudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not a fan that magic should be for family audiences. Mm-hmm. Family magic should be for family audiences. But there's nothing wrong with doing blue material or pushing the edge. But yes, you're absolutely right. Magicians and the way they handle particularly female people is uh, often despicable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say things to them that make them uncomfortable. They're overt and covert sexual acts. We treat them as props. Uh and I, and I find all of that terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that, the first step, well, first of all, there's the big cultural step, right? So there are enough people in our country today that, you know, disagree with that just on principle, right? Yeah. So that, those we've got those in magic too, right? 
So there's the whole cultural evolutionary issue, people, you know, kind of getting with it, or woke as the case may be. Uh, but then there's, you know, just the magic specific issues. And the problem is, how do we learn magic? Monkey see, monkey do. Mm-hmm. This guy, oh, guy did that joke. I do the trick, this guy does that joke. I do that trick, this guy does. And then the fact that most of the people getting into magic are young men at the time that they're just you're adolescents and they, you know, they're going through their 20s and, you know, you use anything you can to get the girl. Yeah. It's, uh, it's problematic. I, I don't know if I said anything about it. I mean, it, so I agree with you. It is problematic. You know, well, do you remember that letter that that girl wrote, uh, that woman wrote? Uh, I'll probably get emails from that. Uh, about her experience at the castle and one very well-known magician who she just thought was, you know, reaching around her, doing little gropey jokes. Making and her very Stuff that he had done on the comedy club forever and ever and ever and ever. Yeah. Never had a problem. Or at least... Never had someone who was willing to speak up in a way that got out there in the world. Had never been called on it. Yeah. 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 Or at least in a way that went public enough that other people knew about it to make it an issue. Yeah. I mean, who knows what phone call may have happened at a comedy club in Topeka after they had left. Um, I wrote an act once, and I've never done it. And I probably honestly will never do it. So there's no point in not telling you about it. And it addresses this issue. Mm-hmm. It's designed to be performed for other magicians. Mm-hmm. So the original idea was to do it at comedy clubs because I wanted to do a commentary on comics because I had a lot of friends who were comics. Mm-hmm. And it was to go to an open mic night in full clown regalia mm-hmm. and go up. But the, the act wasn't the clown regalia on stage. The act yeah. was being in the back with all the very serious comments, yeah. but me in a clown suit. Yeah, Because in the community I knew, there was a lot of pretension going on. And mm-hmm. I just liked that idea. And then I had an idea for doing an act for a magic club. And I thought, well, what if you did like every magician's act for him? What if you just like ask people to name tricks they did and you did it? And then you did it with all the standard lines. But you did it to expose how staid we yeah. were. And that's when I had the idea. What if I did all of those lines that you hit on the girls and all the stuff and all that, but I did it as an act? Mm-hmm. And the act would be, uh, my name is Raymond Pewterschmidt, uh, and I'm starting a new comedy club act. And it's an adult act. I'm trying to figure it out. Now, Raymond Pewterschmidt, you may not recognize me, but I have a day job. I'm actually a very famous birthday clown. You may know me as Ray P. the Magic Clown. So it's Ray P. the Magic Clown. Mm-hmm. And uh, the premise was you get people up there and you do all of those awful things which in this situation makes sense right yeah because i'm clearly embracing it but i did i want to do this for magicians yeah so they can see oh this is the dumb stupid hack this is what it looks like when you do it yeah by exaggerating it to the point of look when you say this to a woman on stage yeah this is what you're doing. Yeah. Why are you making someone uncomfortable on purpose at right. all? Right. Like, and, and, and by turning it to the character of, I'm going to be this creepy, sleazy guy, yeah. it takes the heat off of the person. Right now, they're a contributor to my ickiness, yeah. not me trading off theirs. Now, I've, I've never done it because the problem is, where can I do it? Yeah. Right. Because the act would play in a comedy club. Yeah. And it could be quite funny, but the social message would not be landing where I wanted. Yeah. And there's no magic event in the world that would hire me. You could do to it at a convention. 
Well, that's what I mean. I don't know. No, I could do it as a convention if they didn't know that I was going to do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then and then never get invited back, uh, which I might do at some point. There's got to be an altruistic <laughs> convention that's like, that, that this is what get we up need. There. Yeah. But, you know, here's the problem, though. The conventions that might be, you know, like Magic Con was a kind of, you could probably get away with it in a space like that. Mm-hmm. But that was all young, hip people who are yeah. down with... You're performing to the people that don't necessarily need that. Well, you know what? I bet, they would have, I bet they would have gotten it seeing it. Because yes. I know all these guys do it. But they're at least they're, of the soci- they're socially aware enough to know that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. They just don't necessarily realize that what they're doing is that. Yes. Right? That's true. Too. So I Right. But the people you really need to... I mean, uh, we had a local magic club guy. Every time a woman came to the club, he would call her delectable. Oh, aren't you delectable? And I'm like, what a creep are you? Yeah. But, and and, you know, and also, this is one of the reasons I think that women in magic have such a tough time. Because a woman comes into magic and every guy tells her she's great Mm -hmm. because they think in doing so they're going to get in her pants. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and that's a terrible thing mm-hmm. uh, because it's unfair to them, yeah, and it's creepy, yeah. But that's what the you know that's that's what happens, yeah. Uh, uh, and 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 just and just not to deal with the fact that it creates a really uncomfortable space in general for women to be around magicians. Yeah, I would never take a um, a girlfriend or something to a magic event. Well, I, case in point. Um, and I wrote an essay about this. I was at mystery school, right? One of the mm-hmm. early Jeff McBride mystery schools that were in you know, the woods with the goats and the singing. And um, th- talk about an enlightened group. Of, first group of magicians I ever knew that actually discussed the role of women in magic. First group that I'm aware of that ever did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so very enlightened group. But there was one show mm-hmm. uh, and it was uh, lots of the performers would get up and uh, the whole group was there. And there was one younger, really attractive girl that was there. And I kid you not, every single male magician, Mm -hmm. there are a few other females there, but every single male magician picked that same person again and again and again and again. Now, I have a reason. I I essay I talked about that and why why we do that. Why do we do that? uh, I call it women and children first. Mm -hmm. But but let me tell you what happened. Yes. So second half, take a break. I tell this girl, I said, I'm going to do a trick and I'm going to say for this, I need a volunteer from the audience. And she, I told her to raise your hand and go, oh me, please pick me. And then I picked her up and I did the trick with her. Mm-hmm. And it was great. She was actually a perfect person to do the trick with. And she was a good friend of mine, right? I'd actually introduced her to this group. Yeah. And uh, so that was my little way of kind of getting that message out there, which was mm-hmm. uh, women and children first. Magic's about power, right? Mm-hmm. When we do magic, we as the magician want to feel powerful. Mm-hmm. But most of us are insecure in our power. Mm-hmm. So who do we pick for our volunteers? People who at least socially yeah. and in the patriarchal society yeah. are less powerful. Yeah. We pick the women and the children. Even when a smart magician or a halfway thoughtful magician should know that neither are appropriate for that particular demonstration. Yeah. You see a magician pull the kid up to do something that just a kid should not be doing. And also magic isn't about whatever. power in the first place. Hmm? I said and also magic isn't about power in the first place. Isn't about power? Yeah. You don't think so? 
I think it's... I mean, I'm just going back to what we were talking about. Okay. magic being this beautiful thing that we yes, create with but 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 the, there is a but there's a uh, but magic the magician there's is the an inherent power dynamic right 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 yeah and 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 the magician but the point is not that power dynamic no yeah. no but the magician has to have power of course because the magician is the person who's 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 manipulating who's on the symbolic stage, me- media yeah. right uh but also mm-hmm. dramatically speaking mm-hmm. much magic is about power Yes, sure. I'm making this happen. I'm doing this control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's take it one notch backwards yeah. to the more performative state, not the meta state, yeah. which is what you're addressing, which I absolutely agree on. Yeah. But just the performative interactive state of you're a human being who's producing a phenomenon in front of another human being. Yes. That is about power. Yes. Uh, and the magician wants to be the most powerful person on stage. So they pick the people that they see as weaker. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that women and children are weaker mm-hmm. because often we have seen both of them overtake and overpower the magician. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's why we do that. Mm-hmm. That and a lot of magicians think by doing the trick for the pretty girl, they're going to get laid. Yeah. Uh, so I, now I don't know what show you saw because uh, I had somebody comment funny because they because I had a guy on one side and a girl on the other. They said, we've never seen a guy pull a guy up before. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll have two guys. Sometimes I'll have two girls. Sometimes I'll have a guy and a girl. I'm looking for the two right people. Yeah. To me, the gender is not really an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a lot of this stems from an observation that a man named John Mendoza wrote in a book years ago, which was when you do magic to a female audience member, they tend to react bigger. Mm-hmm. Is that true? It depends on the female, doesn't it? Yeah. Depends on the culture. Depends on the environment. Depends on the room. But I would say that it is, particularly at the time that book was written, that in our Western American society, men generally are are, are supposed to be more stoic. Women have greater freedom and permission to be more... Hysterical. I would have said overt, but you know, hysterical, whatever. Well, I mean, no, 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 you're absolutely right. About the no, 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 you're yeah. absolutely right. But that, yeah, no, I, I just like the, I like, I'm, I'm, the idea of hysteria and its roots to, you know, the craze and the moon and the syndromes. I yeah, love yeah, that. that's yeah. But uh, so to me, I use that word on purpose. <laughs> okay, good. To me, I think then, if I can get a man up there. And get him to produce an amazing reaction. Yep. Isn't that actually a much stronger it's so experience for the audience? It's so much fucking stronger, Brad. I'm so <laughs> with you on that. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Because if you take something that people largely expect and you ramp it up two beats, that's one thing. Yeah. But if you take something that nobody expects and you ramp it up to just the unexpected, that's a far greater delta, a dynamic of change. Yeah. And that's all the audience can feel is the change, right? Yeah. We can either move them emotionally someplace different, or we can increase or lessen the depth of how they're feeling. Yeah. Some groups don't want to go on an emotional journey and hear about your drag grandmother and how the ghost came back to haunt you for years later until finally she gave you the winning lottery number that allowed you to marry your wife and get your cancer surgery. That's a very powerful story, but not everybody you're going to get, particularly at the castle at midnight. Yeah. It's going to be down for that ride. Gives a shit or will even <laughs> be able, be able to, right? Some yeah. groups you get, they're just hysterical. Yeah. So all you can, you got that one emotion, but you know what? You can bring them down mm-hmm. you can bring them up. And what people feel is they're different. So the way you measure the success of any magic performance mm-hmm. is that those deltas. Yeah. How can you move the audience either 
increase or decrease the depth of what they're currently feeling or take them to different locations. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that we as magicians can do. Yeah. It's the only thing is we as an artist can do. And we measure the power, I guess, the success of our performances, mm -hmm. our art, to, to the degree that we can do that. Yeah. And not, again, not all audiences are, they're all different. Some audiences, they will allow you to paint a magnificent canvas that's as wide as you want. And some audiences, you can, you can only paint a little beautiful miniature. Mm -hmm. But you know what? That's the show. That's what they get. Yeah. That's what we made together. And it's beautiful and it's perfect in its own way. So performing is like this really great act of creation. It's almost like great, you know, when you're in a great relationship with someone and you've got that moment, there's the eye contact and the breathing and the two bodies become one and you're, it's an in and an out. And when it's all over, you remember having a great time. And even though you don't, you remember pockets of it, it's, yeah. I mean, it really in its best version, it's, and as a performer, for me, the trick was learning how to get into that moment. Because mm -hmm. I still have to be analytical. I still have to make choices. But learning to trust myself and the, that it's okay with the audience that I ride that raid with, with them. Mm -hmm. And that I make myself vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that I'm willing to go where they want to go. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also the one who's tying the ropes, too. You know, yeah. So I, I got to keep the knots in the right place. But we want them to have this experience, and it's it is this really great give and take. And I think in the in the most exciting incarnations of what we do, we literally, even though the tricks may be the same, the words may be the same, what we create in that moment, because you and I and she and he are together here and now is singular it can never happen again every show we have the opportunity to create something that will never exist mm -hmm. but for that moment mm -hmm. and that's why it's beautiful it's like bubbles it's like fireworks it's like sex the reason they're precious is because they're temporary yeah and if we look at it that way then performing becomes a pleasure you get greedy because you want to do it because it's like what can we make this time? Yeah. What's it going to be? And you don't get bored. You don't become the country bears, right? Mm -hmm. Country bears, you're doing the same line, the same show, whatever. Are we done? Great. But when you're creating, then the shows stay fresh and you look forward to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's for me, a key to magicians getting out of their comfort zone and being more creative on their own and writing their own material and not necessarily coming up with their own methods, but stringing things together that are that are reasonably original to them because everything that you just said from the per performer's perspective can and ought to be thought about from the audience's perspective okay because if you see a show uh, tom ogden did spudge bunnies in the late show yeah, yeah. so for people that saw both of your shows they saw ostensibly the same trick twice and even if you hadn't done it like or even if he hadn't done... No, scratch that part. They, so they saw it again and they go, oh, I know what this is. So it's lesser. Yeah. It is. And with all the things that you mentioned, except maybe for sex, the first time is the best time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so I agree with that. But, and, uh, and I've said this, I think 
and this is kind of funny for me to say, given the material that I do, and this might have a tinge of arrogance to it, but I'm going to stick with it. Um, I agree that there is sometimes, it is often a poor choice to do, let's call hackneyed material. Yes. And that's because um, while we can make the argument that most people go through their whole life and never actually see a magician live, mm-hmm. it's not completely accurate. And that, while that is true, that while is undeniably true, that doesn't address the situation. Yeah. The situation is what of the people that do see a magician? Are they likely to see another? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Yeah. Not who gets to see a magician. Yeah. It's if you see one, are you likely to see another? And I think that the odds of that increase mm-hmm. because if you're the kind of, you know, magicians aren't everywhere. Yeah. So if you see a magician, you're the kind of person who will go to a place that would have a magician. Mm-hmm. And if you're the kind of person who go to places that have a magician, you're likely to see more than one of them. Yeah. So when every magician is doing the invisible deck, the cigarette through quarter or the whatever. Bolarama. Yeah, or Bolarama. That's another great example. Well, I was, was going to say cruise ships is another. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I knew a guy who, who used to book cruise ships and he goes, you know, I, I can just look at the tape and I know it's going to be bowling ball, straight jacket escape. And then there was one other trick that everybody and their brother was, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. And he just goes, I toss him. Um, so that's true. When you choose a trick that someone may also likely do, mm-hmm. you always run the risk of inviting comparison. Yeah. So you have to better be sure that you do that trick better than anyone else that they're going to see. Mm-hmm. Because if you make them feel deeper than the other guy, yeah. you're the real magician. Yeah. And I will put up any of the pieces that I do that might be seen by others. I'll put up my version, my way. Not me performing, not you doing my version of my trick, because that's not going to work. Yeah. I will put up my performance in a room against any other magicians. I'm not saying it's going to be better per se, mm-hmm. but it's going to be at least as deep and as memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in, in that case. And, and also, another. let's face it, even though Tom did it, that's an interesting choice. Because when I did the bunnies last year... Mm-hmm. Uh, I had so many people to say, you know, we've never seen anybody do the bunnies here. Yeah. Because magicians poo-poo that trick. Yes. Right? Because, like I said, yeah. the people we see do it the most often are the people who are least experienced to do it. Yeah. And uh, so when I did it last year, I mean, people were going, have you seen the guy with the bunnies? The bunnies, the bunnies. Oh, it's like a the fucking bunnies. phenomenal right. trick. Yeah. And uh, so I made that choice. Now, it was unfortunate that Tom was also doing it. And mm-hmm. usually, you know, when you go to the castle, you send in your set list and they work to check those things. And that mm-hmm. didn't happen. And uh, for whatever reason, and, and Tom just, you know, and I did it first. And, you know, because yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm early. Sense. No, because I'm early. I mean, that was just, I did sure. it first because I was early. Yeah, yeah. Right? So Tom came in and he was in this unfortunate situation, mm-hmm. right? And But Tom being local and also being a great pro and very nice, you know, I, I think he left it out the first set. And then I think somebody said, no, you guys are just like totally different. Just do it yeah, anyway. Yeah. And he's okay. His ego's not wrapped up in it. He's a pro. He knows what's going on, right? So he made that choice. Yeah. Um, but but he, show you how smart he is. You know, at some point, there was a girl in the audience or a guy in the audience that uh, in the middle of his show said, are you going to trick do the trick with the bunnies like the last guy? Mm-hmm. And Tom reaches in his pocket, throws him on the floor and goes, not now. Yeah. You know, great. That was a great moment, right? Yeah. To them, yeah. it was probably as magical as if they had done the trick because it was in the moment. Oh, he didn't yeah. make those bunnies appear. Were Absolutely. they already there? How um, did he know she was going to say that? Exactly, right? Yeah. So those are the moments that make it real. Yes. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. The second time someone sees it, uh, you do have that. So you have to ask yourself, mm-hmm. 
am I making these people feel different or deep, more deep or different or with greater depth? Yeah. Because if so, that's the one they're going to remember. Yeah. They really will. Um, I had a great example of that and now I can't remember it. Uh, but but that's but that but that's just it. If if the audience, oh, it's so you know, Masculine and Devant wrote this great book called Our Magic that everyone says they're read and very few people have. Uh, and I'll confess, I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah, but he talks about different levels of art: high art, low art, false art. High art is something that's never been seen before. Yeah, right. Uh, low art is you take existing ideas and you come up with something new. Yeah. False art is basically copying. Yeah. And I was I was watching a singer-songwriter perform at a wine bar and they were singing different songs and they were, they were songs that I knew but it was really interesting. They were really good and I really liked it because their take on it was so different. And that's when I realized that again it all boils down to feeling. If you can create something brand new no one's ever experienced, that produces a new feeling. That's that's art, right? But if I take that same, let's say a song, right? But if I take your same song that you wrote, the original totally new art, but I can present it in a way that either makes you hear the song differently yep. or consider something about life, the universe, and everything or yourself differently, yeah. well, that too is art. Yes. Because we're creating that different feeling for response. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just need background noise. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So that's when you hire the cover band just to play in the background. Because that's serving a function and not intended really to be a conveyance of feeling per se. Yeah. Then that's not art, false art, non art. Now, there are people, you know, it's like paintings, right? You know, you can go see a great Picasso and it's moving, it's profound and what have you. And uh, and you could also, sometimes you just got a space over your couch and you need to hang something. Yeah. Now there are lucky people out there that get to hang a Picasso over their thing. And fuck but, them. But the, yeah, <laughs> lucky them. But the question then becomes, how do how are they experiencing it? Yeah. Because to them, it may just be a piece of function, right? And yeah. So to me, the idea, again, it boils down to is, can we make our audiences feel differently? And I think I probably get more out of the bunnies from a visceral reaction from people. And again, as I said earlier, we know that when we imagine something, or you know, an imagining or a fiction produces the same emotional hormones yeah. as the reality. So if I can get you to the point where you're thinking magically, mm-hmm. then the chemicals that get released, which define how you feel about it, are identical as if it were real magic, aren't? isn't it? So think about what the bunnies are. The bunnies is the creation of life. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a trick more profound? Because at that point in my show, I believe I have people in the audience that are so willing to come with me mm-hmm. That when I'm tapping, they're imagining these bunnies as actual creatures fooling around and doing it. They're filling in all those blanks. Mm -hmm. And when they imagine the story, it releases the chemicals as if that story happened. So it is as if I actually did create life. And that's why, and I'll say this, and this might be controversial for some of your listeners. I think visual magic is the weakest magic we can present. Mm -hmm. 
because it requires nothing on the part of the audience mm -hmm. other than we accept it or we don't. Mm -hmm. It's the secret to the Blair Rich Project. It's the reason Jaws and Alien were shot the way they were. Mm -hmm. If we see the whole alien, if we see the whole fish, we can define it and it's not interesting to us. Yeah. Blair Witch was successful for a lot of people because so much of that film depended on you filling in the blanks. You were engaged in the process. Your brain imagined the scene which released the chemicals which caused the feelings of fear. Yeah. But people, there are people, though, that aren't good at that. And mm -hmm. they hated the Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Because it was just dull. Yeah. With visual magic, you deny the audience the ability to participate in the magical creation. When I cover a card with my hand and you can't see it, but I'm wiggling my fingers, your brain is imagining something is happening. Mm -hmm. You're creating the magic moment. When I show you that the condition has changed, we confirm that what you were imagining occurred. Mm -hmm. you are now part of this exchange in this process in this creation if I just snap the card and it changes you just have to accept that it changed mm -hmm. you are not engaged now mm -hmm. the reason visual magic is considered so strong among magicians is because we're in an internet world magic is a commodity that needs to be sold the best way to use the visual media to sell it is through things that are visual Mm -hmm. So visual magic on the screen is strong, mm -hmm. but in real life, it's a short, shallow pop. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use visual magic. Yeah. And there aren't moments where that's not the perfect spice for the moment. Mm -hmm. But the depth of magic can only occur, again, what's my first axiom? If the audience is engaged. Mm -hmm. We need to encourage them and create opportunities for them to engage in their imaginations in the process and that deepens the magic mm -hmm. if it's just look and see it's shallow yeah it's not that it's not magic but it's shallow and we know that if we want to redefine what magic means for our audience we have to make the audience feel deeply mm -hmm. right yes so uh, that's that <laughs> <laughs> let's see how long we've been going 145, that's pretty good. All right. I haven't even asked you the stuff that Adam told me to ask you. Oh, well, there you go. Well, I was young and I needed the money. That's why those pictures are out there. Okay. Well, I don't know. I haven't had enough coffee. I wanted a, a quip, but there wasn't one. Yeah, well, it happens. Um, Harry Potter magic set that never happened. Yeah, yeah. That was a fun ride, though. You know, I read the book, uh, the first one, and I loved it so much. And I was like, you got to do a magic kit with it. And I started dreaming, right? Yeah. And I was like, I wonder if I could, could I put out a Harry Potter magic kit? So I called Mattel. Yeah. <laughs> or I called, uh, who did I call? I found out that Mattel had bought the toy rights. So I called Mattel. And I was like, what's the story? And uh, they said, yes, we have the rights. They gave me a little information. Somehow I found out that Mark said, no, I called Mark Sedicati. Somebody said, I'll call Mark Sedicati. He would know. Yeah. So I called somebody. They told me Mattel had the rights for the toys. Um, I called uh, Mark, who was in Hong Kong, actually working on the product. Yeah. So Mattel, I'd hired him as kind of as a consultant. So he said, we'd love your ideas. Mm -hmm. And he gave me an idea. He said, pick a single principle of magic and exploit it. You know, see what you can do with it. Yep. 
I'd done a little work with some black art stuff, uh, which is an optical principle that allows magic effects to occur in a very visual, uncanny way. And um, I started thinking about it. And I'm a very theme-driven, very, you know, because I knew that they wanted this to be experiential. Uh, so what I did is I created um, magic tricks based on all the classes. Divination, Transfiguration, blah, 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 blah. Charms. Yeah. And these were, and so the idea was, uh, these were your lessons that you would practice at home. Yeah. These are your homework lessons. And I built a little, uh, it was... It was so I'm not very handy at all. So these were like two store bought shirt boxes at 90 degree angles, and everything was with tacky glue. And I made up and I built a whole could do a 45 minute magic show with stuff and cool stuff like Bertie bought beans, 3D beans, visually shrinking and growing in size, and uh, uh, magic coins changing and transfiguring. We had levitations. I mean, we had we had we had a uh, a mind reading effect that was actually really a couple of them were really kind of smart if I do say so so uh, I filmed it and I sent the tape to Mark and he sent it to Mattel and they flew me out and they and I had a meeting and you know Mark tells me afterwards he goes you know this is like a guy who decides to start running and is in the Olympics three months later. Yeah. You know, I, I, I pitched to the biggest toy company in the world on my first product. Mm -hmm. uh, and they loved it. And they said, but there's no way we could make it. It's clearly too complex. And I and, and Mark told me not to tell him how it was done. Yeah. I said, well, I will tell you this, and I'm completely being honest. Everything that you see is made with craft sticks, you know, tacky glue. It was all cheap-ass stuff. Yeah. And uh, so they optioned it. Yeah. And it went through a few incarnations. We wanted to make it a little more themed. So instead of it just being this generic theater, we did two versions. One was a wizard's closet. And then a friend of mine at the time, a uh, really great, smart artist girl named uh, Catherine Casey Sullivan, um, she made uh, for me this cool suitcase mm -hmm. that you could carry and you could open up the top and the sides. It was great. Now, the reason is... You're not allowed to do magic off Hogwarts property. Yeah. But if you're gone all summer for winter break or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, no school wants you to go the whole time without practicing your skills. So this was like a portable part of Hogwarts mm -hmm. that you could do your magic in. So it justified having to use this box or object or whatever to accomplish the magic effects. So anyway, the story that Mark shared with me was, uh, you know, they present the products to Rowling. She got final approval. And she would knock every one of them down because, oh, this, I don't want magic. I want wizardry. Mm -hmm. Well, you do know wizardry is not real, right? I mean, they, they had some issues going back and forth. Yeah. But apparently, the only product that made it all the way through, mm -hmm. never got cut, was my wizard's suitcase or whatever. But when you get to the end of the line and you spent a million dollars, for the line, and you've got one product, mm -hmm. you're not making that money back. Mm -hmm. So Mattel um, worked out a deal where they resold their rights back to whomever had it. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> the kit then went on a journey throughout the world. And it's now been produced. Uh, I think Hans Clock uh, has, sells it huh. as his magic kit. I eventually... Uh, sold it to a company called Hanky Panky Toys in Thailand. And uh, they produced it as the Izama Magic Kit. Izama 
is the word amaze spelled backwards. So if you're a kid doing this, your theater says Azama, but when you're doing it for yourself in the mirror, you're constantly being reminded to amaze. I thought that was clever. Yeah. But it's a cute little theater box and all these custom props and they all appear and disappear and it looks really great. Um, so, you know, that's available in Europe. You know, having a magic kit in Europe is like having a girlfriend in Canada, I suppose. You just have to take my word for it. That there. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And then uh, Bessie the Duck. Oh, Bessie the Duck. Uh, I love... So, all right, here's an example. Here's an example of what we're talking about, how magicians' values can keep us, can hold us back. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I or 12 or something, I, I got a card duck, right? It's a wooden duck that picks out cards from a deck. They date back to the 1800s. Like Norris, John Norris was the first person to do it, although he's not often credited as being the inventor. Anyway, um... And I used to do this trick at my birthday party shows when I was a kid. And uh, Rich Block had a clever routine for it. And I used to do that routine, which is very high wordy. You know, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary to perform a miracle on a clearly defined, albeit limited basis. Some put their faith in divine providence. Others, in immortal gods. I, on the other hand, put my faith in this little wooden duck. And it was just this nonsense routine. But it was great. Anyway, but, you know, like all cool magicians do... I'm going to outgrow these props and Mm -hmm. become an exclusive, very serious, sleight-of-hand artiste. Purist. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But I love magic, and I'm a collector, so everything I have is on display. And people would come in and go, what does the duck do? And i go, here, pick a card, put it back, and I would just, boom, just the basic trick, pick the card. And people would go, what? And it only took how many years of people going, what? Before I realized, this is a great fucking trick. (laughs) So I thought to myself, could I, as a fairly well-read card guy, use my knowledge of card magic in conjunction with the duck Mm -hmm. to create a routine that even smart magicians would go, well, I know how the duck works, but I don't know how the fuck they knew what the cards were. So uh, it's a piece that I did kind of in the style of a Ricky Jay thing so it's a, a lot of my pieces one of my styles and my stage pieces i like to build something up really big and then with one sentence just you know pop the bubble yeah. you know but that's kind of my nature right you know you see me i'm austere and kind of weird looking or, or powerful you know scary looking and yeah. i write and i can be very serious but when i perform it's like pop the bubble right yeah. this yay thing that's what we have a huge moment pop you know keep yeah. uh, you know and then you reinflate it right so so I, I like that style. So anyway, it's a routine that I created. I'm very proud of it. And I tell you what, there are people that, you know, I, I do these summer camp circuit things. And, the, you know, I come back to the same venue and they ask, is Bessie with you? And uh, they make T-shirts for her and they hold wow. up signs. We love Bessie. And uh, my Twitter handle is Bessie the Duck, although I'm never on Twitter anymore. But, um, but yeah, no, it's just, I again, my thinking is, Originality is great. Don't get me wrong. Originality is great. I'm never going to fault someone who is original because they feel it's an improvement. Not just original because it's different. There's one person I know who um, was giving a lecture on originality. And they were talking about this, this, and this. And they come up with a card trick where everything is original. And at the end of the day, I'm actually sitting next to Mike Weber. And I lean over and I go, or you could use a one-way forcing deck. Yeah. Right? He had all these ingenious ideas, 
but he could have accomplished the exact same with the exact same degree of conviction and understanding of the audience if just he had a deck of cards where all the cards were the same. Yeah. And no one would be able to feel any difference. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a fan for originality for originality's sake, Mm -hmm. uh, unless that's part of the process. Coming up with new ideas just to know as part of your process, mm-hmm. it's a fucking great process, right? Yeah. But performance, making that cut, just because it's original doesn't mean it's good. Yes. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. Mm-hmm. Just because a lot of magicians like it doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. Just because I like it doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. Right? So anyway, I love taking um, these old things that you know... The reason they're still around is because there's something about them. So can we find that again and present it in a way that is not laden with some of the, you know, uh, with the with the stupid stuff that just doesn't play anymore because of time. I mean, you watch some of these old magicians from the 70s and 80s and whatever. We watch the performance and we go, uh, but you know, a lot of that is just because their lines and their stuff and their style, it's just not, it's not contemporary, it's not modern. But if you look at the actual trick that they're doing, it's a great trick. Yeah. Right? So, you know, yeah, we have to, language changes, styles change, but these are superficial elements. Mm-hmm. It's to find something that's a diamond mm-hmm. and being able to keep that diamond and just put it in a, a better setting. Yeah. To me, uh, you know, which explains me why people try to steal tricks or why people, you know, spend their life. They, oh, I'm going to wait till I see somebody on TV do something, then I'm going to try to do that trick. You could go to, there are thousands of tricks that are out there. And most, a lot of them are excellent. Mm -hmm. Most of them are really pretty decent. And with, you know, just a little bit of thought can actually be made into great. Yeah. So the material is out there. So there's no excuse for us not to. There's no excuse for us to ever to steal from somebody mm-hmm. or to take something without asking. Um, there's just as anything you see in magic. I guarantee you, uh, there's something as good, if not better, just waiting for you to find yeah. if you're willing to look. Mm-hmm. So why take a choice based on love that makes this less unique? And instead, make a choice and try to find something different. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the story with Bessie. She's uh, she's going to be on tour with me this summer. She hasn't been on tour with me for two years, but she's going on tour this summer with me, and uh, they'll be happy to see her. What do you mean on tour? So um, I perform in the Northeast every summer. I've done it for twenty-eight years. When I was nineteen years old, I. Uh, they were having a job fair, a summer camp job fair at my college. And there was a, uh, a summer camp that had a magic program and they needed a magician. So I, they hired me and uh, I built a very successful magic program, probably the largest, what I would call non-dedicated magic program in the world. Non-dedicated, I mean, I'm not counting against uh, Sorcerer Safari or Magic Camp or what, those are magic camps. Yeah. Mine is a normal summer camp. That has a magic program, right? Yeah. And we built this great program. And in it, we had uh, uh, Adam Rubin was one of the guys that came through it. Uh, Seth Rovner, who runs uh, the Philadelphia Magic Shop. 
uh, and was a consultant for some of Dan White's stuff. He was one of my kids. Uh, uh, Zach Kahn, who's now a comic and does some writing in Vegas, got a movie coming out. He was one of my students. Uh, uh, anyway, so I was there all summer. Mm-hmm. So uh, we did some really interesting things there. I mean, we had an illusion class where we would design and build our own illusions. We would do seances where we'd write a full script and character and stage seances. We had a magic theory class. It didn't start. I mean, it started with just a beginning class and an advanced class. And then as I built my following, as it were, uh, and we would produce shows, and it, it was it was great. It was highly rewarding. But you know, a summer camp can only afford to pay you so much. Mm-hmm. So what I, there are tons of summer camps. So I basically took the dog and pony show on the road. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've developed a following in the Northeast. So I tour and I teach magic. And really, what I'm teaching is an appreciation of magic, but yeah. I do it through teaching magic. And I do hypnosis shows and I do magic shows and, mm-hmm. and various combinations and various length of days at various camps. Sure. So that's my tour. So uh, I'll be from the middle of June to the middle of August. I'm uh, in the Northeast, Poconos, Catskills, Adirondacks, Maine, uh, and I'm working these events. And Bessie will be on tour with me, uh, performing and making people happy all over the world. That sounds awesome. You know, um, and, and they really love her. Like when they find out she's not here, they get upset. Or, or like they see me walking around camp, they go, where's Bessie? I go, she's in the car. And they're like, is she okay? Uh, yeah. And I'm like, so you but, tell them your dog died or something. But, but see, that goes back to what we were talking about with the bunnies, yeah. right? They have personified it. Yeah. So Bessie finds the card. Bessie is amazing. It's not me. It's ba- I, I thankfully was successful in getting these people to see it that way. Yeah. And again, they wouldn't see it if they didn't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. People want to believe in magic. Oh, people don't believe in magic. Bullshit. Of course they do. Yeah. They want to believe. If you give them something worth believing in, mm-hmm. if you give them something that the belief in that which you give them is more meaningful to them than knowing how it's done... Yeah. They will protect and fight to keep that feeling. Yeah. But we have to be able to give them something that they're going to care about, which means we have to think about it in terms of them. Who are they? Where are they? What do they need? What do they want? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I don't, I I can't, you know, introduce them to things and take them places they may not think they need, want to go. Yeah. But ultimately, I have to start with them. Mm -hmm. If they don't come with me, I can't take them anywhere. If I can't get engaged, engagement, I cannot realize my intention. So they have to be willing to meet with me, mm-hmm. but I have to be willing to go to them. Um, you know, I've said that at a couple of shows, you know, uh, when I'm doing my little banter out front, you know, I'm looking for you guys are going to be fun. You know, we're going to have a great show. If you do your part, I'm going to, you know, it's going to rock. But that's just it. Mm-hmm. You know, if the audience does their part, the audience is part of this equation because yeah. magic is not really a watch me art because it requires it requires the audience to engage in a worldview that then we can alter, right? Mm-hmm. So unless they're willing to interject and commit with their worldview of reality, we can't change that. Yeah. So we have to engage with them. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I, I can't think that you could produce magic. Yeah. Well, that sounds that sounds like stand up to me too. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I'm constantly relating magic to stand up. 
Yeah. And I think that there's a lot that magicians ought to learn from stand Well, you know, I learned a very valuable lesson walking stage. So uh, I was hanging out. I had a friend who was in the comic scene, and I would go to all the open mic nights with her. And, uh, and one night, one of the performers who had headlined, right, or got up and did uh, open mics, trying some new stuff, right? The quality of their jokes, mm-hmm. the delivery of their jokes, everything about their jokes, yeah. objectively, no better, not fundamentally different than any of the other crap the other guys were doing. Yeah. But the audience didn't feel that way. They liked that guy better. Mm-hmm. And here's why. There was one thing that this guy had that the rest didn't. And it, would, it was true in the showroom, too. Yeah. But he brought it with him. And the fact is... He was consistent. The audience knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Everything uh, that he said, we could relate to him. And from them, we could measure why it was funny. We felt safe with him. It's like when you're with friends and they say something that's funny because you know who they are. Yeah. It was that same kind of thing. I wrote a piece about this. I called this the haunted house theory of magic. If I said I have a haunted house, scariest haunted house in the world, $10,000 prize if somebody can make it through, start to finish, you have to go through alone. No one's ever made it before. When you start, are you going to make it all the way through? Do you think you're going to make it all the way through? You don't know, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know. It's a scary proposition. But if I say, you know what? Uh, I own uh, the scariest haunted house, and uh, uh, we have a contest, and $10,000 you're going through. Nobody can make it through alone. Would you like for me to walk you through it? Mm -hmm. You're going to get a lot further then, aren't you? Mm -hmm. The only difference is you have a point of familiarity to which you can tie your experience. Mm-hmm. So now you have a safety point, a point of reference that we can move off from there. That's why that comic was funny, yeah. was because the audience had a point of reference. He was clearly who he was. They had a relationship with him. They knew who he was. They could put his words in context with who he was and could see why they were funny. Yeah. And he had that ability on stage too. I mean, he had developed that, but he got to take that in this other showroom. Most magicians, I have no idea who they are. Yep. I have no idea what they're doing or why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's just weird. Well, that goes back to the self-expression that I was talking about earlier, which yeah. is, you know... It, it, I don't think it's art if you aren't being authentic. And that's all self-expression is to me. Picasso said, all art is a lie that reveals the truth. I do think a great foundation for the art is, I think in the art there has to be truth. But authenticity, I don't know. Just step backwards one more step. Okay, tell me where I'm going. Uh, He still made that because of a feeling that he had. So like earlier, I think uh, you said... I was talking about expressing yourself and it being art if you express yeah, something. And yeah. you said, well, I'm just doing this for them. But that's inherently what your internal goal is for that. That is the intention of it. Right. Well, I mean, I'm my goal... <laughs> so I'm trying to convey an emotional response. Yeah. It's not really about me expressing myself because honestly... I'm not. I'm not expressing myself. I'm not sharing something innate. Yeah. I'm, I literally am. But I didn't say. I, but yeah, I'm yeah. like painting. I, I'm painting with your emotions. Yeah. I'm creating and manipulating the space. Yes. To convey a feeling. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it's expressing myself because it's something I like to do and I want to do. Exactly. It. That's all I'm saying. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think. I'm not when, saying you I have to use magic as metaphor. Well, I think or... that the, when we say express ourselves, yeah. based on a lot of people's ideas about art. Yeah. That that's where they necessarily go, and I just want to be clear that 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 we aren't talking and exclusively that because I have yeah. one friend who's yeah. a great performer, very artistic performer, and his thing is, 
it's about, he believes that art should be about sharing something about yourself. Yes. And that's fine. Yeah. The art, though, is when we convey that feeling for response. Yeah. What we choose through which and how we choose to convey it is just yeah. ultimately a yeah. matter of taste and, and subject matter. Well, I guess what I'm saying is like somebody going up and doing uh, an act that is, they got out of a box. And it doesn't matter how amazing it is or how... Uh, it, it, if it's if it's fake, if there's an element of falsity and intention to me, then it's not art, unless that's the point, and then right. it becomes meta. But 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 at the same time, point. and again, maybe we have to get more specific to what you mean by authenticity and what is being authentic. Authentic. Yeah, I agree that if something seems insincere or false, uh, or unbelievable, or you know, you, 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 you get bad performers. That hampers mm-hmm. what it is. But when I say, when I hear authentic, mm-hmm. it suggests to me that the, the performer necessarily ha- feels some relationship to this truth or whatever. And I think as a creative artist, someone who's creating the work, that's probably always going to be true. But maybe you could do it as an experiment, you know. And, but, there, but anyway, but the point is, let's say an actor. Yeah. I mean, I as an actor can bring truth to something but it's not i don't know i i just the word with authenticity is again i don't want us to necessarily walk away from hearing that and i'm not saying that that's what you're suggesting I, this is more just to make sure that the people that are listening to it realize that we have more options than just who we are and what we believe. You can do art about things that you don't necessarily believe. That doesn't mean it won't be, uh, depending on how we define authentic or inauthentic. I I want to open the doors to as many possibilities as possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really cautious when I hear things like, this idea of magic is entertainment. Uh Magic should be entertaining. I think it's one of the dumbest phrases I've ever heard. Agreed. it was Schindler's List entertaining. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. is Guernica entertaining? No, mm-hmm. but those are great and powerful pieces of art. Mm-hmm. Entertainment, as a word to me, mm-hmm. means something that's joyful and trivial and upbeat. It's entertaining. That's your definition, right? Of right. Now, I know a lot of people say magic should be entertainment. That's not. They don't intend to limit it to that. Yeah. But when we look at the reality of the way magicians think, there are a lot of magicians who have taken that as being true and do believe that magic should only be that. And that's what I want to avoid. Yes, I agree. And that's why I say magic should be engaging. Yeah. Because Schindler's List is engaging. Mm-hmm. We engage you, and then we give you an emotional response. Mm-hmm. And the emo- you know, I used to know a guy who was uh, he wasn't a sushi master, but he was on his way to it. And he said, in sushi, we embrace all of it, from the 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 bitter to the sweet, to the tender mm-hmm. to the chewy. Yeah, every sensation is a valid sensation if the artist intends to convey it. Yeah. If I have the intention to convey this sensation, then making you hate this moment and feel incredibly uncomfortable and never wanting to experience it again is a valid and pos- and valuable yeah. artistic choice. I agree. And it's nothing like entertaining. Mm-hmm. But where are we doing it? Yeah. That kind of thing is not going to play an early close-up at the castle. Yes. I've got some. I've got a piece that I love. I perform at the castle. I used to do it all the time. It's a story about the first time I worked at the castle. Yeah. It's this very romantic story. People sometimes get moved to tears. 
And I love doing that piece. And I love creating that feeling with the audience. But you know what? And I've done it at the castle and I've done it successfully. But I learned that it was better early than late because the early people could more focus. The late yeah. people, not so much. But then the last time I was working the castle, I was like, well, what is the castle? The castle, while it is a place to see magicians, there are lots of places in the world to see magicians. Mm-hmm. What makes the castle unique mm-hmm. is that it's our private clubhouse. Mm-hmm. This is where we hang. And you are our guests. Yep. So my, and, and I think when the castle started, they were doing simple tricks, the cup and the ball and the and things like that. And I, and when I decided to do the set, I was like, I want to do, play homage to what this place really was. Yeah. And that's why I sit with them and I get to know them and I talk to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I want to be that guy. We met this guy and he was the greatest magician. And he took us into the room and he gave us this experience. That is again, singular because of the space. Mm-hmm. And what is now, last year, I'm about to go on, Right, and I'm debating because I was like, "Well, I need to do a trick for the magicians, right? The magicians, because they're members too." And you know, so I have this really crazy hard trick. Right? It's like it's really cool, and I've done it at the castle, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really hard. And I, I tried to work in it. Was just a little made the set a little too long, and it put the focus and an energy on me and downward as opposed to on the energy of the group and upward, which is what I wanted. But still, I'm about to go on. It's Monday night. Do I? Do I do just the stuff I do for real people and trust the members come with me? Or do I play for the members? Because I'm really having this kind of existential conversation and emailed a couple friends. And um, and what made matters worse is this Monday I'm about to go on, and it's been years since I'd played the castle, was when they were having Irene Larson's memorial. Oh, wow. So first of all, you know, not the most upbeat time to do magic <laughs> tricks, right? Yeah. And second, every magician in the world was here. Yeah. So I'm thinking if these guys come to the show, you know, what are they going to see? Do I want to show them the magic? And again, I said, Brad, you know this is true. Stop thinking like a fucking magician. Right? Because your only hope is to create a feeling for sponsor. Every time it's so fun, the magicians forget that they're magicians. Mm -hmm. Right? Because if you let them be magicians, and I reinforce this, I want you to appreciate me as a magician, they're going to sit there like this the whole time with their arms crossed in an analytical mode. Mm -hmm. That's not why I'm here. Yeah. So maybe I do the layperson stuff and the asshole magician in the back won't let go. Well, fuck him. He made the choice not to participate, not me. Yes. But you know what I found? They came along. Yeah. Because... The only person who doesn't come along with that is the person who's just not there yet. They just haven't matured magically. Yeah, yeah. No, I I know that there are magicians who see what I do and and they go, oh, I know all those tricks. Uh, And they dismiss it because of that. But... But that's because they've never worked a room. Yeah. You know, I, I will say again at the risk of saying area, I, I, I think I get I, I'm con- you know, I'm confident that I I can sit in that room and I'm going to get as least of a good a response as anybody. You know, because yeah, weird shit's gonna happen and sometimes you don't make the right choices. But you know what? If I'm not gonna make the right choice, <laughs> you know, who is, right? Mm-hmm. So and again, that's not to be at, but there's a confidence that comes with the fact that you can only do what you do. Yeah. So don't do stuff to please somebody else. Do what you do well, and the audience will come along or they won't. Mm-hmm. And um, if you've built what you're doing from actual real world performing experience, and you know audiences do come along, yeah. then th- what else can you do? Yeah. What else can you do? 
But it's still intimidating because we as the castle, because we're magicians and we're egos and we have our weird value systems and we want, oh, he does this and this and this. You know, we, we need that. And even, even as I've gotten better at not caring about that, that's still part of my makeup and who I am because I'm a magician and I'm in the community and that's the way the community does things. It's mm-hmm. our, you know, I'll show you mine if you show me yours and we'll see who's is bigger. I mean, we all, we have that there. But I'm just, I feel happy that now I, I really do, uh, particularly at the castle, there's so many people that come into that room ready to have such a great time mm-hmm. to focus on the people who aren't. It's just stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. The two, the two most important things, which one of them we've talked a lot about, and now we're talking about the other one more. The second is context. First being intention. Yeah. Intention and context. Being aware of where you are. I think if you know and really fucking know and understand those two things, then you're more than halfway. Well, it's an example I point, I, 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 I point out, you know, a company hires you to come in on Friday afternoon to do a magic thing for the, the team. And you go into the conference room and, uh, you know, the guy's got the jet set set up and he's hiding behind there ready for his dramatic appearance. And they read the introduction, appeared here and here, and the guy hits his uh, sound cue system. Or, or what's worse is uh, he hits the sound cue system. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Toledo, Ohio, having presented on, you know, Mary's Riverboat Run. We have the one, the only. And he comes out like it's fucking Vegas. But it's not Vegas. This is the room they eat lunch in on casual Tuesdays. <laughs> right now. Now, there are performers like a Jeff McBride who can yeah. come in and who are just so powerful energetically that they can get over that hump. I'm yeah. not that guy. Yeah, yeah. So what I realized a long time ago is they're not seeing you as a magician. You're seeing yourself as a magician. They're looking at you as a Yahoo and sequins with a curtain. Yeah. Who fucking brings a curtain to where we eat lunch? So what do they see you as? They see you as a potential speaker or rep or talk. That's where you have to start. Yeah. You don't have to start. But if you don't start there, then there's For going to be a disconnect, people. right? Yeah. There's going to be a disconnect that you're going to have to overcome somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to start there, but that's the problem you have to solve. Yeah. Right. If you don't start there, you have to fix this disconnect. Yeah. And uh, so where are we? I'm a student in school. Well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to say uh, or do a lot of things. I mean, but we've but this issue goes back. Think about how, you know, the 12 year old kid. Well, I picked up this prop in my travels throughout India. Yeah. But here's the weird shit. Now that I'm old, I can say that. Yeah. And I live in a house that's a museum. So I can say that I could say this piece is, you know, a voodoo head hunting tribe thing. And for me, people go, yeah, he probably does have one of those. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it is the your contest. Yeah, the beard man. <laughs> I tell you, 80% wiser. This conversation we're having is really 60% less smart than it is to people who don't see that I'm saying it with a beard. So everybody listening. <laughs> that's right. That's right. This would be so much better if you could see the beard. The beard is good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, the context is so so important. Um, and then uh, carnival games and cons, and that was that's the third thing Adam asked me. Oh, I collect stuff. I'm a collector. In fact, we were supposed to be interrupted because we're having a big gaming, gambling memorabilia, and there's a bunch of cool uh, rigged gambling equipment, and there were three pieces I was going to bid on. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, they forgot to call me, so they lost a little money today. Um, I'm fast. I, I collect lots of things. So I collect uh, 
when I was a kid, and I've been a collector since I, I was a baby. I mean, I, I kitty like Disney records. I started collecting when I was a kid. Then board yeah. games, mm-hmm. and then Star Wars figures and stuff. I mean, cool. I had I had the original Kenner set that you had to send away for. If I didn't have a sister, I would have so much money on my shelf. But my sister broke everything I ever loved. Um, <laughs> fucking little headless Luke Skywalker. Um, so. Uh, and, and magic, and then I was young, and I was fortunate I got into magic books. Uh-huh. And then when I was young, I uh, I was also fascinated with Disney. I'm still fascinated with Disney, so I always wanted to sell, so I collect Disney animation art. And uh, I've been collecting magic and magic books. Uh, the oldest book in my collection dates back to the 1640s. Uh, I've got 2,500 or so, but I don't know how many books I have now. I stopped counting. I collect magic posters. At some point, I discovered what automaton were, mechanical dolls that come to life. Some magicians used to use these. And uh, I've, I've become fascinated with them, and thankfully, I've now acquired a few, through, uh, some of them for, from a, through a gift from a very, very kind uh, friend of mine who's also an automaton collector who moved. You know, when people move, you sometimes you get a couch. I got an automaton collection. Um... I collect human oddities. What a fucking weird world we're in. I know, right? <laughs> I collect human oddities, taxidermy stuff, uh, and uh, Japanese puzzle boxes. Oh, cool. And uh, one of the things that I collect is... Um, what were we talking about? Oh, gambling. Rigged gambling stuff. So I've got a, a holdout table that was seized in an FBI raid where uh, you uh, there's got a sweet spot on the bottom of the table. So as you hold the cards, you can switch them in and out of the table. I've got carnival wheels that are gaffed. I've got scissor buckets that the operator can control whether you can get the ball to stay in the bucket or not. Mm-hmm. Um you know things that so uh, of varying degrees because uh, lo- I'm not a gambler but I love the psychology of beating the system and I love mechanically clever things and some of these devices are absolutely ingenious so uh, so I do collect some of those things and uh, they're all on display in my house and people come over and I get to play with my toys with them <laughs> that's that okay that's another thing that I just really love uh, that really influences and inspires most of the things that I do and enjoy, which is just sharing what you love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my best friend is a guy named Richard Garriott, you know, revolutionized the video game industry. First guy to do a massive online role-playing game with the Ultima series. Uh, has a huge collection. Has a collection of collections. Had a house. Secret passages everywhere. Just crazy parties. And that was his philosophy. It was like, you know, I have it to show it. Yeah. If it just sits here, it's dead. Mm-hmm. You know, so people are like, you know, I take these puzzle boxes to summer camps. You know, I like kids play with them. People go, it's like, are those in the world? And I'm like, yeah, that's why it should be here. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it's sitting on a shelf and it's dead. Yes. You know, and yeah, sometimes things get damaged or broken or whatever, but you know. Ultimately, it's just stuff. Ultimately, look, I'm going to die. Yeah. You know, I'll let the next guy worry about it. Now, I feel that I have a duty to try to preserve and protect it and whatever, but I also have a duty to keep it alive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, there's, if it's just dead and it goes from my hands to their hands and it never comes alive, then that just seems to me also to be a waste. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, in fact, maybe we can do this. I, there, There's a video of my collection that a, a news agency did. Maybe we can. Put a oh, yeah, we'll put a link that. up, absolutely. They, it, they took it down. It actually got down accidentally. They had a mistake in the coding, and they're trying to put it back up. But uh, it may be up now. I don't know. But we'll do that. And they'll get to, you'll get to see some of the stuff that I have and some of the toys. And uh, is I don't remember. Is, is some of your collection in the movie, Our Magic? Uh, they filmed some of the stuff. 
Uh, so in Our Magic, you see my friend Richard Garriott's... There's a video called Room for Wonder. Uh-huh. And I am basically talking about Richard Garriott's collection. Okay. Now, since that time, several really wonderful pieces have been gifted to me. So there are several items that you'll see in there uh, that are now mine, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. Um, and, but uh, you, during the talking head segments, you'll see some of my stuff behind me. But I don't think that... Uh, not enough to really know what any of it is. Okay. And they did film a section on the puzzle boxes, but I don't think they um I don't think they ever did anything with it. Okay. Yeah. Oh cool. There uh, you go. Yeah, I just have, you know, the the regular finishing questions. Okay, well let's I feel good. How do you feel? Uh, good? You know, I I love talking about this stuff. Again, less to fill my own ego, but more because every time I say it, it helps me solidify it a little better. I hope to do a, a book on my big book on theory someday, mm-hmm. but and I've got a lot of the raw materials, but I just don't. I don't have the the sequence, the pattern, of revelation. It's not in my head completely yet. I will have a book coming out soon called uh, "14 Card Tricks of Varying Degrees of Quality and Lessons Derived from Each." And it'll be 14 card tricks from incredibly self-working mm-hmm. to really knuckle busting and the tricks are all great for what they are but it's not really about the tricks what i'm really hoping to teach people is how to think about this because i go into great detail what was i thinking about what was i trying to do here's what my solution was here's over time what i realized worked and didn't work here's why i changed it yeah here's what you might want to consider because again i we have so many so much magic we teach we teach what's but not the hows we it's almost like we teach people to be dependent upon the magic creators. You have to buy tricks from us. Buy tricks, buy tricks. Mm-hmm. I want to teach people how to think about magic. So yeah. you, if not just invent your own tricks, but how to take what you're given and come up with something that makes it unique for you, that yeah. differentiates the feeling for response that you create from the other person. I want to try to empower magicians to better realize their visions. Mm-hmm. And uh, this particular book, the goal is, so you can see how I did this, was some very simple card tricks. Yeah. Um, and, and, but they're also good, good tricks too. Sure. And then I'll be reprinting the dance uh, that's in the works. Um, I hope to have that done by August with some new material, which is my book on cold reading. Cool. So I'm hoping to do a little bit more stuff inside the magic community, particularly yeah. on theory. Because I think, I think we, I think, Illusionist came on the scene. A lot of these young people started getting into magic. They've been doing magic for a while. And when I look and I talk to them and I see what they're writing, some of them are now getting to the point, I think, where they're realizing there's got to be something a little bit more than just buy the trick and do it. Yeah. Something more than buy the trick. And then our Paul and, you know, Jason had their thing come out, which was very well received. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jamie's books just came out. So yeah. I, I think we're... People are into it. I think people are hungry and yeah. need... Because I think we've exhausted... That's what this is. Well, and that, that's why I said yes. Yeah. That's exactly why I said yes. Because I think that, um, you know, there are people that also I know just will tune this kind of stuff out because they, all they want is the tricks. And again, if you're doing it for your own pleasure and you just get value out of fiddling with the cards and seeing how to move them and come up, bless you. Yeah. You know, bless you. We need people like David Neighbors who can come up with a thousand and twelve ways to do the coins across. You know, uh, he contributes yeah. greatly to our art form. Um, and we if that's what you do, great. I'm, I'm not the person who's probably going to be able to help you 
that person yeah. on that path because that's not my mm-hmm. area of expertise. But as someone who loves magic, mm-hmm. who does think like a magician, yeah, you know, I all the all the sins for which I condemn others, I do so only knowing that I am guilty thereof. Yeah. Uh, and I see how they have affected and held me back. Mm-hmm. So I've been down the path, and what I just hope to do is to show people that, yeah, I know this is what you're thinking, but let's just, let me tell you that this is what I'm looking at now. This is the forest that I'm seeing, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the forest is much bigger than the four or five trees that are in front of you on the computer right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. I was going to ask those, sure. but then you said something. Um, you just touched very briefly on learning magic and learning how to think about magic. And I want to ask, as someone who teaches, how do you think someone who has never learned a magic trick, how do you think that they... But they really want to, like... They've been bit by the bug, officially and, and hard, and they yeah. really want to do it. How, yeah. do they, how should they learn? You know, this is a whole different world than I grew up in. Because there are more resources available to someone who's coming onto the scene now than ever before. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it harder. Mm-hmm. It's just too much information and there's no way to know what's good. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. If somebody's putting, you know, uh, if somebody spent their lifetime figuring something out, are they going to put it up on YouTube and show everybody for free? A lot of times the people that are the most vocal in our field know the least about it. Mm-hmm. That's just a reality, yeah. right? If you're willing to come up with an idea and sell it instantly for $15, I don't think that you value that idea a lot. And that's probably because you didn't spend a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. I know when I spend a lifetime on something, I just don't want to give it away. Mm-hmm. Or if I do give it away, I want to give it away completely because I, I know it's the right thing, you yeah. know? Um, well, that's why I asked because you seem like the person who wants to share the puzzle boxes. And those are potentially priceless. No, I want to share. But but when it comes to my, so my goal is I want to help other people become great magicians. Mm-hmm. And I don't know necessarily that putting up YouTube tutorials uh, and selling magic tricks uh, and putting out content and how to mm-hmm. with so much content and how to out there mm-hmm. is necessarily going to make it easier for them. Mm-hmm. The problem today is learning how to navigate yep. the massive amounts of material that's out there. Mm-hmm. And I honestly don't know how a young person today, and, and I'm not talking about you know the kid who's going to the library. I'm talking about somebody who's kind of in the magic scene, who's aware of magic books and downloads and videos and stuff and kind of wants to get into it. Um, yeah, I was lucky because a new magic book came out maybe once a year, which means you got it and you had a year before you were distracted with the next book being advertised. Mm-hmm. So when I was, I do, I do have an answer for you though. I know exactly what the answer is going to be because when I was young, you know, I only had a few books and I would read them and reread them and read them. And I got a depth of knowledge. Here's the answer. Uh, very well known YouTube magician. who's a good friend of mine. Uh, Brian Brushwood mm-hmm. and Gordon Prince. I met him when they were 17 or 18 years old. Very smart, very, very creative people. And they came to me because I was kind of looked as like the, the card guy in my city at that time. And I was a few years older than them. And they said, look, we think we're creative and we want to come up with our own magic. But we want to learn the technique. So we will you teach us technique mm-hmm. and then we'll come up with our own tricks. Yeah. I'm like, sure, why not? It was a terrible idea. Completely failed. 
And here's why. That was the equivalent of someone saying, you know, I want to be a great writer, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't want to read any other books. I just want to learn the meanings of words. Mm-hmm. I want to be a poet, but I just want you to teach me the meanings of words. Mm-hmm. You can't do it because magic has a syntax. So what I would recommend doing is getting a great big old book of somebody. doesn't matter who even, really. Some are better than others. And devour it. Mm-hmm. Learn every, work through every, not, you don't have to do every trick. Work through every trick, mm-hmm. okay? And then if you like one or two, go out and try to work on them for a while. Try them on people. But work through every trick. And then pick another guy. Work through every trick, right? Because what you're doing is you're seeing how here are the problems, here are possible solutions. Mm-hmm. Here are problems, here are possible solutions. But you're doing it in a way that theoretically is going to work. A way that we know is will produce a satisfying result. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend getting some of the older books, right? Mm-hmm. Because, look, oh, our stuff is new. Yeah, it is kind of new, but it's all based on the same principles that this stuff it's is just based been published. on. Yeah. Right? It's just it's a new it's a new style, new taste. Yeah. But the principles are the same. And the difference is when Brother John Hammond put out his book, mm-hmm. he had done all those tricks for fifty years. Yeah. When you put out your DVD, you've done it for a year. Yeah. You're going to get a much more solid structure, construction from these th- these books that were published, not because I want to publish something because that's what I think magic is, but these books that were published of I've had a lifetime in magic, now I'm sharing the benefit of all my thoughts. Yeah. You know, we've switched our culture from the, waiting a lifetime to share your thoughts to the moment I have an idea, I'm going to sell it. Yeah. And that's not good for us, too. Mm-hmm. Just because it's new and shiny doesn't make it good. Yeah. Uh, find magicians that you like and study their work, but don't try to copy them. Mm-hmm. Find out what you like about them. Yeah. Uh, read old magic books. You want to get great ideas? Just read old books. And go. And you'll hear, hear about tricks. You'll go, well, I never heard of that. And then if you don't like the method, because some of the methods could be data, well, then figure out a new way to do it. Yeah. Uh, and then the ultimate thing is to go out there and do it, and to do it a lot, and uh, to try to do it for new audiences, which I know is incredibly challenging for most people because you know they have their circle of friends, so they're always going through new material. So it's hard to get one or two tricks and learn well. And I think you should get one or two tricks and learn well. I, my, my point in life, it's very rare that I learn new things. I'm fooling around with stuff all the time, but until I yeah. really see something, I was like, I want to work on this. Same. Um, but you know what? I, I would say for a young person, Learn as many tricks as you can and do as many tricks as you can and do them well. And what you will find is, oh, I really like this one. And this one will stick around with you. Yeah. And then the other two you're trying this week, you'll forget about. And then this. And oh, then you'll come up with a better way of doing that. And then you'll slowly and organically build a rep. But it's not a race. Yeah. It's not a race. You have a lifetime to accomplish this. Yeah. And it's going to change over a lifetime, mm-hmm. right? The stuff I can get away with now, I couldn't get away with then because of the beard, yeah. right? I I look differently now. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I was you know I you know I was timid and power, but but now when I sit down, I can command and people take it differently. David Burglas can do the worst equivocate in the world, right? He could, yeah, and people would still think it was a freaking miracle because he looks like a wizard. He talks like a wizard. Yeah, David Burglas, as we know, is, does some of the boldest moves in magic, but because of who he is and the aura he exudes, they're invisible. Yeah, so it's a journey. And it's always going to change. And you're never going to be able to do the same thing the way you did. And you're never going to be able to do... So dispel yourself of the illusion 
that you will ever be able to give your audience the exact same feeling that another magician gave you by replicating what they did. Because you're not them. Mm -hmm. The way I do a trick and the way I say the words and the way I look determine that if you were to say the words and do the trick the same way I did, it's not going to feel the same because you don't look like me. You don't sound like me. You don't have my life experiences. You're not you. When we as a magician see want to do a trick, it's because we like the way the magician made us feel. Mm-hmm. So we want to give the audience the same feeling. So we start by trying to copy it. That's doomed to failure. Mm-hmm. You will never be able to do that. Yeah. So think about that feeling. I want my oh, see how he got that tension and that that release and that upbeat. Oh, how can I do that? And it's probably not going to be the same trick. Yeah. And if it is, it's definitely not going to be in the same way. Mm-hmm. But if you like the trick, do the trick, but do it in your way, in a way that makes it feel different than what the other guy does. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to do the trick and make it feel that way. Mm-hmm. So let's just get over it and let go and realize we can't have everything. We can't yeah. do everything because we're all different. And that's the potential greatness of who we are and what makes magic magic. Del Rey used to say, the moment magicians, you, a person sees the magician do the other tricks, it becomes a commodity. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, and he's absolutely right. Magic should be special. So when you see every guy doing the same thing, it lessens it. Yeah. You know, the bunnies, the truth of the matter is, you don't see a lot of magicians do the bunnies anymore mm-hmm. because it's hacking. People have forgotten about it. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember when Copperfield did misled. I used to do misled all the time, and then Copperfield did it on TV, and I had to. I stopped doing it because I didn't want people saying, "Oh, that's a trick Copperfield did." Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you see a trick doesn't on TV or another magician doesn't mean you can't do it. Just wait five or six years yeah. for everybody else to forget about it. You know, even though a smart magician could look at my act and they could probably name a lot of tricks I do. Truth of the matter is, if you ask yourself, when was the last time you saw a magician in a you know, sitting, do those probably not, not as often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is value, uh, in that kind of, you know, you do want to set yourself apart, but yeah. So, uh, read everything you can read established books, not just flash in the pan. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you like an idea, go for it. Don't get me wrong, but get that background in that foundation. Remember magic has a syntax and what you see like in today you know, a lot of magic tricks, the moment of the magic occurs at the moment of the, the method. And I think it's terrible. Yeah. Now, for video, it's kind of okay. But in video, it's kind of you accept it or you don't. Uh, but, you know, you learn principles like that. So if you're having a trick and you feel it's a little too tight, you know, well, what if I separated these things? Mm-hmm. If you learn how to th- learn the construction and theory of how magic works, then you're empowered to be a builder, even if you always start with someone else's plans. Yeah. Not everybody can draw their own plans, and that's okay. But you can build based on someone else's plans and create your own unique dwelling mm-hmm. in which your magic gets to live. Yeah. Yeah. So learn magic, do magic. Get some good books, good solid stuff, um, and go through it. And the reason I say books over videos, first of all, anybody who says, I can't learn from books because I'm a visual learner, you're a liar. You're lying to yourself. I have a master- too early. No, no, no. I have a master's degree in education. Mm-hmm. Visual learners learn well through the printed word mm-hmm. because it's information process visually. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is you don't like reading and you're not a good reader. And that's 
a fault that a lot of us have, right? Mm -hmm. I was a terrible reader, but you know what made me a good reader? Learning to read magic books. That's the only reason I became a good reader. I was never a good reader until I started forcing myself to learn how to read magic books. So it's a tool and you need this tool set because video is great, does some things that books can't do, mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is we have a history of gigabytes of information that just will never make it to video. Mm -hmm. Just never will. The second reason you should do this is because when I watch a video, I see all of the choices you make. Mm -hmm. When I read a book, I have to make choices. Mm -hmm. Pick up the deck, put it in your hand. How does that exactly look? Turn the cards in for in. Make a magic gesture. Move the card from the top to the bottom. Even in the printed text, even if it's very specific, there are all these opportunities that require you. Remember talking about the audience having to engage their mind, mm -hmm. participate themselves? Requires you to engage and contribute to the work. Yeah. So when you learn something or a book, there's going to be more of it in you automatically just because it required you and your imagination to fill in those blanks. Right? Yes. When you watch the video, you miss that. It's just too easy to become a mirror. And then you're doing things that for this performer may look great and make sense because of his way of natural way of handling things or idiosyncrasies or whatever, but that's not gonna work for you. Yeah. So that's why it's important to read these things because it automatically projects you mm. into the learning process. Yeah. Whereas with video, you either accept it or you don't. And that's why we have so many magicians. You know, Bill Malone uh, told a story he, when he would hire people to work Malone's bar and grill. He would ask him how many tricks they did. And if a guy said 78, he knew it was bullshitting, right? Yeah. Because that guy owned enough DVDs that had 78 tricks on it. When you watch, you can be passive. Mm -hmm. I can watch a magic video and have a great time. Yeah. But when it's over, I don't remember anything. I haven't learned anything. Yeah. But the act of reading requires a greater degree of interaction. So even the act of reading, you end up actually learning stuff because you have to learn it. To, you have to engage with it deeply enough for it to go from your eyes into your brain. Yeah. So in many ways, it's actually a more efficient learning technique. Yeah. But for some things, it is nice to see a video of it mm -hmm. or it live. You know, If I'd never seen Roger Klaus or Bob White live, I would have never understood what the whole Vernon thing was about. Because mm -hmm. that was the case I read the books and I, I didn't get it from the book. I just didn't get it. And that, you know, that happens too, right? Yeah. But once I saw I was like, oh, there's this whole way of looking at magic. I get it now. And now when I went back to the books, I could understand it. Mm -hmm. So I would say get great, good, solid books on magic and just work through everything. Yeah. You don't have to perform everything, but work through everything. And then over time, you'll kind of learn how to think about magic and how it goes together. And, and you'll put tools in your toolbox and it'll help you develop your tape. I like this kind of magic. I don't like this kind of magic. Um, and you'll get to learn a lot of magic that doesn't play well on video, mm -hmm. but plays great in the real world, which is how most of us are going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Let's do the final question. Okay. Right. Let's do it. And I just, you know, as a side note, as someone who sells magic, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Oh, I uh, think we uh, magic, there's nothing wrong with buying magic. And there's nothing wrong with buying magic just for fun. But the thing is, if you're, if you're going to perform this and you want to perform it successfully, it takes more than buying magic. Yeah. That's, oh, that's not the end of the process. It's the first step. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or one of the early ones, at yeah, least. Yeah. Um, and, and as someone who runs a site that does only videos... Uh, the only, I mean, the best way 
to learn how to to learn magic through video is to have already learned how to learn magic yes. through books. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and it's not that you can't learn magic from video. It's just the nature of that. There are certain benefits. You know, there are things you can learn from video much easier than you can in print. But there are certain weaknesses. That, you know, it, oh, of course, you absolutely. know. So I'm not. I'm not a, a one or the other yeah, guy. Yeah. I'm not saying that videos are bad. Yeah. But I think also part of the problem is when you know the means of production. As the means of production have gotten easier, we've always switched to the easier means. And because it's a quest to do things easier, we don't necessarily think and go, what can we really do with this media? Mm -hmm. There have been very few products. Uh, I think Homer's Coin 1s and Coins 2, those are great products that take advantage of the visual media Mm -hmm. in a way to convey information that is not just uh, a recording of a book. Yeah. See, and I, I'm not a huge fan of podcasts because when I'm reading information like this, theoretical stuff, I like to be able to kind of scan and go back and focus and whatever. Uh, that's one of the problems with video too, is it's not it's it's linear, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you can skip around, but it's still linear. Mm-hmm. Whereas with books, you it's so much easier to flip and to see and you know, so there are positive pros and there's cons. And you gotta use not you know, the right tool for you. You're not a visual learner. I know it's easier to watch the video, uh, but you got to read the right tool for you. But some tools are some tools are fundamentally better for some things than others, independent of your willingness or unwillingness to read. Yeah. So uh, it's 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 not a either or. It's a and 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 more. Yeah. You know that that's what you need, um, and uh, but yeah, if if you. There, yeah, there's a lot of things to that. I, you know, if there was a trick that was out just on DVD and I wanted to learn it visually, how would I go about doing it? Because I don't want to be too influenced, you know? I want to, I don't know how, uh, you know, because I, I, again, most of the stuff that I'm doing, I'm coming up with from, you know, ideas. Yeah. and for, Anyway, yeah. next question. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, that's how I, that's how I learned through video was I... I understood if I'm going to do this thing and be taken seriously, I need to know the history and the fundamentals yeah. and the guys that the people that I'm learning from looked up to. So I did the books. And then I, as I went through the videos, it was like, oh, the, like I said, you learn how to learn magic yeah. through books. And so because I, was, I had gotten used to making these choices... Uh, subconsciously while I was doing it or while I'm reading the method going oh I don't like that at all because yeah. I wouldn't do something like that and then just changing it in the moment yeah. as you're working through it I was already thinking that way when I started watching yeah. the videos and, and it's, it's harder yeah. to do that with a video though too because the video keeps going yeah. right so to me reading an old magic book is sometimes very hard because mm-hmm. you read it and you go oh you can do this instead oh you can do it and pretty soon you're fixing this, this trick and it's yeah. now great yeah. and that's cool that's what the book should do for yeah, you yeah uh, but with a video, you can't because as soon as you're trying to have your thought, the guy's already going to the next part, and the next yeah, part, yeah. and the next part. It, it doesn't lend itself well to cautious introspection. Yeah. And this, and I'm going to stop, and I'm going to imagine what that would look like if I did it. And, mm. Oh, but that's similar to this, and oh, but if you added this, you know. Mm-hmm. And now you're creating, yeah, as opposed to just watching. Yeah, yeah. And art is an act of creation. Yes. 
Um, but yeah, so what are your what are some of your favorite magic books that you would recommend? Some of my favorite magic books are non magic books. One of my favorite books that was the second. Okay, question. well, <laughs> so let's let's do that. Uh, Susan Longer's Philosophy in a New Key. Okay, it's a great book. It's a book on. It's subtitled uh, A Study in the Symbolism of Reason, Right, and Art, and I think it's one of the best books on what art is and what art does and how it works at such a, a atomistic level that the core of her theory I think is true. You know, we have all sorts of theories about what art is and what things, whatever. I think the theories uh, that she created and that you can derive from there basically hold across all of these definitions. I think it's one of the most fundamentally great definitions, which has to do with symbolic manipulation to convey feeling for responses. So I highly recommend that as a great book. When it comes to magic books, um, uh, one of my favorites growing up, and now, of course, you know, I look back at it and, you know, we, we so some of the influential books on me growing up, of course, the Bill Tarr books were great. Uh, Magic, Schindler, uh, Schindler and Garcia's Magic with Cards I got for a birthday present when I was like nine years old from the Sears Robot catalog. And, you know, pound for pound, there's a ton of great little card tricks in there. Almost yeah. all self-working, but they're all really great and they're simply explained. Um, uh, but there was a book by a guy named Hope called The Holistic Approach to Magic. And it's a book and it's like three tricks but he goes into tremendous detail of each one and the thinking behind it and why it works. And that was a real eye-opener for That's me. That's cool, yeah. And in that trick, he teaches the, the, the salt shaker through table. Uh -huh. Again, one of those tricks that we all did as a kid. And again, the reason it's still around is because there's a gym to it. Yeah. But the thinking that he had, it just opened my eyes. It helped me understand what misdirection was. And I, you know, I, uh, it's a great little book. But... So those are kind of beginner entry-level books. I think today magicians should uh, read the works of Eugene Berger, particularly the older, older ones, Performance of Close-Up Magic, uh, Experience of Close-Up Magic. The Tommy Wonder books I think are indispensable. I think uh, what Bill Kalush is doing with Gibrissier, this journal on magic history. I mean, every, every article has something that'll just be like, I never knew this thing existed. And mm -hmm. it just is really makes you feel both a part of a great tradition, but yet very small inside of it. Uh, I thought the Jeffrey Buckingham book, uh, Professional Secrets, or is it Jeffrey? Not Buckingham, Jeffrey Durham book, Professional Secrets was really great. I mean, here's a real world worker who's breaking apart his act and going over every little detail, why it works and how it works and everything like that. So I'm a big fan of those books that have that kind of practical theory mm -hmm. which is here's the theory but here's how it works in practice so it's not just you know you know just spouting you know philosophical bs yeah uh, another one of my favorite books is the roy benson book you read that book and you'll be a better magician just from the act of reading it to talk about how the book works right mm -hmm. there are ideas on performance in there that will just change the way you think about interacting with an audience there are tricks in there that you'll look at and you'll go holy hell that's genius little touches on ideas there's a, a vanish of a handful of coins you reach in your pocket grab a handful of coins uh, keys whatever and you just have somebody hold your wrist and when they open your hand the coin is gone or this whole handful of coins is gone uh, Benson was a genius a magical genius and I highly recommend that book um, you know the problem is there's just so many great books the Paul Harris books the early ones, like when they were in paperback. Uh, the first one I got was Super Magic with, uh, oh, what was that a really weird trick that we all love? The vacuum cleaner cards. 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dwarves and gnomes, you've seen them on the radio, you've heard them on TV, the world's only vacuum cleaning cars, the card trick that really sucks. And it's, you know, Paul's stuff, you can have a blast with Paul's stuff. I mean, it's all quirky and weird, and, and his books were kind of meant to be fun and funny. And, you know, as a kid, I spent so many hours, and there's a lot of great magic, and there's some unworkable, just you know, weird things in there too. So his books, The Art of Astonishment, you know, kind of culled a lot of that and cleaned it all up. But I wouldn't trade the, I mean, I wouldn't trade my copies of those first books that, yeah. you know, 14 year old Brad was on Christmas break at three in the morning because he didn't have to go to school the next day, was holding open with his feet as he had a deck of cards in his hand and the floor of his, you know, in his bedroom trying for his parents not to find out that he was up doing card tricks then. Yeah. You know, I love those books. But I think um, those are all great examples of uh, books. Uh, and John Carney wrote a great little small book, Fundamentals of Magic or something like that. Can't remember the name. It's small. It's paperback. It's, um, but that was really good. And another book that just came into my mind, and I saw it in my library. And I, oh, his book, Secrets. Mm-hmm is the best beginner's magic book that no beginner could ever have a chance with. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is, the material in it, of course, is very well advanced and very sophisticated. But what he's breaking down and how he's breaking it down and the lessons he's teaching are fundamental and ideal. And really, that's another great book I think people should uh, should consider. There you go. There's a few. Yeah, that's great. And then non-magic books. Well, the Susan Longer book, I think, is great. Yeah. Um, I uh, I was also a big fan of um, one of my favorite non-magic books is Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. When I was in high school, uh, I was assigned to teach that book, and so That's I got to know it a little fucking bit. Fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. They saved that one for me and uh, Missy the Lines and Rose Banks because uh, you know they thought we'd have a challenge with it. So yeah, we our teacher we all every three four p everybody was assigned a book and you taught the book to the class for that week or whatever. Yeah. And mine was that book and. Uh, I really love that book. Um, uh, For the listeners, if you need to ease into James Joyce, get the Dubliners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think Portrait Portrait was good, though. I think that, yeah, Portrait or, yeah. Anyway, it but, I, but, but I, think, yeah. I think he, and along with Longer, you know, you see this idea of what the artist is and what the artist does. And James Joyce has this amazing way of not only making the book about this mm-hmm. but also being that mm-hmm. the artifact is also the message yeah. which i think is great i love books by mary roach i think she's one of the funniest writers out there she's a science writer her footnotes are probably funnier than uh than most people's punch lines i love the works of eric larson he's mm-hmm. a guy that writes nonfiction as if it were fiction. Most famously, he wrote Devil in the White City, which is a story of America's first serial killer uh, and uh, coincides with the uh, Columbian Exposition of 1894. Uh, and I bought it because of the serial killer element. But mm-hmm. at the end, I'm trying to find books on gardening because I understand what an architectural garden is. And they're talking about these buildings and uh, it opened up a whole... So what he does, and I love this concept just artistically, he takes two things that you would think were seemingly unrelated and show how that they were responsible for each other. The America's first serial killer could not have done what he had it not been for specifically what was going on in the World's Fair. The story of Marconi and his attempt to get uh, uh, the, uh, the wireless transmissions was related to a very infamous murder case 
and England where the fugitives were fleeing and they were using the system to track where they were. But because these people were on the boat, they had no idea and they had to get fake newspaper. It's just it's, this it's great story. And he's, he's a page turner, right? Mm-hmm. Everything he does. So I love those kind of books. I'm really big into the science books though. You know, uh, uh, Brief History of Time, Stephen Hawking was a great thing. Uh, uh, I went through my Joseph Campbell phase, my Tao of Pooh and Lao Tzu and Illusions yeah. and uh, all of that phase. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, I like a wide variety of material. Yeah. Uh, but I think when it comes to with applications to magic, uh, the Susan Longer book and then just books. I mean, I spend most of my time reading art books. I read a lot about Marcel Duchamp. I think mm-hmm. Marcel Duchamp was the, the, the greatest artist. Because he, he simplified it all down to its barest essence. And everything, again, come, he described everything and everything that has existed since can be come from Duchamp. Although I'm a huge Picasso fan too, don't get me wrong. Uh, and I love the Surrealists and yep. uh, huge fan of their work. And uh, Miro is one of my favorites. So I, I probably now spend more time looking at art than I do reading books. Uh, but thinking about art, and you know, there are a lot of great art history books that are out there that can really help you start to come to terms with some of these bigger issues, mm-hmm. and um, we can see how they they can transfer to what we do. Great, yeah. And then the uh, the final question is, what is uh, what is the story of the time that you felt like true astonishment? Me, like the hardest that, like you know, you got your brain kicked in. Well, so those are two. Astonishment and had my brain kicked in are two different things. I mean, that brain kicked in moment. I mean, there have been, you know, the first time you see the out of this world is, a, you know, one of those brain kicked in moments. That's funny. Uh, I had somebody else mention out of this world. It's, it's, like one, it's one of those one of moments strongest. where it hits you. Uh, the first time a sponge ball appears in your hand, that's one of those moments. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of great moments like that. So as far as total assign- watching Delray work, obviously that was mm-hmm. you know that was like watching real magic. Uh, Mystery School, you know, one of the things we did at Mystery School in our attempt to explore, and this was at the first one, and the, the Mystery School started out really weird, and they got more like magicy convention right mm-hmm. over the time because more magicians w- were kind of embracing and trying. But the first few, and they were out there. It was you know stage magicians, but there were also witches and. Druidic priests and religious scholars, experts, and uh, you know, it was it was like this really amazing. So fun. Yeah, and we met at an ashram, right? That had fire ceremonies in the morning and yoga in the afternoon, and they only had vegetable food, which was tough for me being a carnivore at the time. And um, but in the evenings, uh, they would have rituals that Jeff and his team would create, in which you would encounter these characters, archetypes, or whatever. And now ritual-type theater is not new, and it's in the pagan community, it's been gone forever. But the magician ritual theater has an advantage that these guys don't have, which is we can make shit happen. Yeah. And I'll, it was, you know, a fun experience, a weird experience, and I remember going to this first station, and you get down, and uh, it was uh, Scott Hitchcock, actually. I didn't know him then. And he, it's an earth, air, fire, water kind of thing. And this may have been the first one. But he, um, he takes a bit of dirt, and he puts it on the palm of his hand. And uh, he takes a little dirt, and he puts it on my forehead. 
And then when I looked down at the palm of his hand where the dirt was, there's this coin that's a pentagram, and it was just there. Mm-hmm. It was real, man. Yeah. Now, part of it was Scott did the trick well, but it was the context. Mm-hmm. I, was, I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't, but this happened. Um, I remember when, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that part, because uh, a lot of this was done in secrecy. Okay. I can take stuff out. If no, 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 I'll tell it anyway. It's been long enough. And I'll take it up with Jeff if he has a problem. One of the things that happened is we were led blindfold and walked through, and eventually we, some a guide takes us and we open. We're at the fire, but it's not until you take off your blindfold mm-hmm. that you realize you've crossed this bridge over the water. You don't know that you're doing it, mm-hmm. but just that symbolism of having crossed the river to the other side mm-hmm. to meet the character, the wizard. Yeah, it was heavy, man. Yeah. It sounds heavy. I mean, it was real astonishment. My head wasn't kicked in. I wasn't fooled. Yeah. But I was moved. You had a, a moving realization. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky then to work with Jeff and be on that team and to help create those moments for other people. And we created, uh, uh, one year we created one that was really great. Uh, Michael Carbone was part of the team and it was Kevin Dunn and myself. And we did this whole thing with Tesla coils and lights and power and... and uh, yeah, I really love creating those moments for people, um, whether it's with a magic trick or with us fully experience. Because ultimately, our job is to make people feel. Yeah. And if they feel something that is transcendent and wonderful and seemingly impossible, to me, that is magic. Uh, one of the most recent events I did was with my friend Richard. We did the largest mine apocalypse event on the planet, full scale, four cults competing for your attention, and you know we, you know and. Uh, uh, there was a magic magazine that was, you know, I was had a writer there and wrote it up, and he read it and goes, "I don't think we're going to publish it because, you know, there's not enough tricks, there's not enough magic in here. There's, there's no magic here." And I said, "Are you kidding me? We took these 200 people, and we created a full false reality in which they played for four and a half hours, bursting into a spontaneous dance party that was fully orchestrated. You know, it, it was just, you know." How was it not? Sometimes magicians, if they don't see the sequence, they can't see the magic. Mm-hmm. We look for the tricks and we miss the magic. So to say what are the profound feelings for me, it's those moments where... But, you know, Susan Longer wrote, all arts aspire to the condition of music. Because music is non-representational. Mm-hmm. It's just about the feeling. Now, there are programmatic pieces and whatever. But but in its purest form, music doesn't... The fact that it's a picture of a boat doesn't get in the way of you feeling about it, mm-hmm. right? The fact that it's a boat, sometimes we get focused on the boat and we miss the big picture, no pun intended. But I say all arts aspire to the condition of magic. Mm-hmm. Because when we experience something truly singular, truly wonderful, the birth of a child, a sunset, an artistic experience, what's the word that we use to describe it? It was magic. Mm-hmm. It's not magic in the strict sense because it wasn't something that was impossible. But it was so wonderful, so rare, so peak, that made us feel so uniquely unlike anything we've ever experienced before. The only word we can use to describe that is magic. And that belongs to us. How cool is that? This is great. I feel wonderful. Good. I do too. Hopefully somebody stuck around to the end. They did. Three <laughs> hours. Wow, we killed it, man. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, email me at podcast at artofmagic.com to let me know your thoughts, or join the conversation at the Facebook group dedicated to magical thinking listeners. You can find it by searching for Magical Thinking Podcast on Facebook and give us a like over on the Facebook fan page while you're at it. If you enjoyed the show, share the episode or episodes that you found most interesting and inspiring and let people know what you got out of it. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers.